Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everyone back to Teeth and Titanium. Oscar, it's been, I feel like it's been forever since we've done this. I almost forget how we do this. How are you doing, man? Honestly, though, it's, it's your fault. You've had all these life milestones that you've been going through. So I've been just waiting for you to come back. Yeah, you haven't been doing anything. No, no. Like, well, I've, nothing's changed in my life. You're the one that's doing all the interesting things. But yeah, it has been a while. And it really is like, how do we do this again? I think we talk. We just <laughs> talk for a while and, and then people send us feedback. Okay, let's see if that'll work out. So before we jump into all the current events, and as I said, we haven't, you know, done this for a couple months. So we have a ton of cool current events to get into. Just want to give an update about how we've been doing so far. It's been, you know, almost six months since we launched the podcast. So I'm happy to report that we have over 1,200 plays on the podcast already after six months. The listenership has, you know, we thought it was around 150 to start. It's been steadily increasing. And now we're at almost 220 to 250 plays per episode, Oscar. Is this something you anticipated going in? Honestly, no. Like when we first started doing it, I was like, oh, this will be something fun. Like we'll keep it up because we enjoy it. But I didn't foresee it happening like that. That's great. Yeah. For us, it was, it's honestly been a good way for us to keep in touch too. It, it guarantees that we chat at, at least once a month. Usually we talk more than that. But guaranteed once a month, we're able to take some dedicated time and just catch up and see how things are going. So that's been really nice as well. As our astute listeners will notice, we're happy to debut a brand new logo for the podcast this episode as well. We've added a hardware plate for the T in titanium. I got to give a shout out to Brian Fushi from KLS down here in Charlotte. He was the one that checked out the podcast. He absolutely loved the logo, but he said, man, where's the hardware? You know, you guys do trauma, you do orthognathic. Why don't we have a T plate? I mean, he wanted a gold KLS plate. I said, no, we got to keep it generic. You know, I got to keep it gray and silver. We don't have sponsorships like that yet. We're not for sale yet. We're not for sale yet. I mean, as we've said, we're always open to ideas. Come talk to us. But we're very happy with our current sponsors, the CAOMS. And they don't have an affiliation with the with the hardware company, as far as I'm aware. No, no, not that I know of. So that's been great. And uh, I'm really happy with the new logo. And thanks to Daniel Richmond as well, who helps design that and update that as well. We've got some great feedback now from our past two episodes since we last spoke. Obviously, we had our two-part interview with Ben Felix from PWL Capital. We've been receiving a ton of very positive feedback. The number one comment I think we received was similar to what you felt, Oscar, which is that you just wish you knew all this stuff before and it's great that you're learning it now, but some people wish they'd heard about it, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Honestly, it makes such a difference. And yeah, like for let's say me and you who are young and very early in our career, it's great. But yeah, for the people who have been in their career 10, 15 years, if they would have known some of this stuff a little bit earlier, would have made even a bigger difference. Definitely. So glad people are enjoying that. And if you haven't checked out those episodes, highly recommend you do. Really, really could change your financial life for the better. Also, can I get a shameless plug in here quickly? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You've earned so it. So Ben Felix actually has his own podcast called the Rational Reminder Podcast. And I was actually a guest on that like last year, or maybe the year before. So if you did enjoy the last two episodes with Ben Felix, check out Rational Reminder Podcast episode 65. I was a guest and we went into kind of evidence-based investing and, you know, being a, a young do-it-yourself investor and the challenges you go through at the beginning, especially coming from a medical and dental background. So I think 
our listenership would really, really enjoy it. So check that out if you want a little bit more of that type of talk. Or a little bit more and Wendell. A little bit more Wendell, a little bit more Ben Felix. You know, if the uh, three and a half hours yeah, of episode enough. five yeah. Yeah, wasn't enough, then you can get even more. But I think people that enjoy those episodes will really enjoy that. And the last thing regarding, you know, Ben Felix is, I haven't actually told you this, Oscar, but Dalhousie, you know, they have some medical students over there, uh, Eric, Paul, and Sina. And what they're doing is they're creating a mini MBA for medical students. That's awesome. And what that means, oh, it's amazing. They're they're setting up kind of a six-week course and they want to talk about investing, taxes, and corporation. They're still kind of working out the outline right now and they're looking to debut it next year and then eventually expand it to other places. So I won't go into full details now because we'll probably get an update maybe next year, but what a great initiative and sorely you know, lacking this education during our residency, during our education. And I don't even think like residents, even just like if you go back to just dental school, like there is no information on finances, on tax planning, on anything like that. And you go from being a dental student that's paying all this money to go to school. So you don't really worry about because you're just paying all this money. So then you're now out, you're paying your debt back off, but you're making all this money and you really have no idea on how you should invest it or what you should be doing or what is smart with your money. I think that's a huge gap that all programs have. And that's great. That's awesome. Yes, yeah, a huge shout out to them. I think it's a great initiative. And we'll get we'll get into more details and let people know how they can access it in the future. It does bring up something that I was thinking about is, you know, I really actually enjoyed doing these episodes on real life stuff and mixing it in with, you know, science-based guests. You know, we had Tony Shahadi talking about uh, marketing and also social media, which was kind of a hybrid of real life and your practice and science. We had Ben talking about financial investing and, and retirement planning and things like that. I think it'd be great to do mix in every now and then episodes on real life stuff. So, you know, I was thinking for me finishing a fellowship, having to join the real world for the first time, there are things you encounter that, you know, you've been going through the past years, such as how do you get an accountant? Yeah. How do you figure out where you want to work? Where you want to uh, live? Where do you want to live? Do you yeah, buy, mortgages, do you buy a houses. House. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, renting, uh, buy a practice, work at a practice, associateship, all this great real life stuff that a lot of our residents are going to encounter very soon and new surgeons are going through so they can kind of relate to what we're saying. So I think it'd be good to mix in some real life stuff. It's going to be great because we'll get my perspective, you know, going through fellowship and then coming now. And we'll have your perspective having already graduated and working in private practice to kind of balance off each other. Yeah, like I think I think that is awesome because you love oral surgery. I love oral surgery. Our listeners are going to love oral surgery. That's why they're listening. But it is nice to talk about other things in life that that are going to affect you just as much and are going to play a role in your everyday oral surgery life, like you said, where you live, how long is your commute? Do you buy? Do you do all these things? They're very important once you graduate. Exactly. So look out for that. If you have any topics on either real life stuff or science-based stuff that you want us to talk about or get guests for, do send us an email, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. I will say our next guest we have lined up for December. I won't say who, but it's very, very exciting. And it's going to be academic based. It's based on mandibular fractures and how to manage them. And what's great about that type of guest is it's something that almost every oral surgeon has to deal with. Very common. It's not some niche topic. So it's going to apply to almost all of our audience. Yeah. So all the listeners will have to be able to relate to it. Because like you said, sometimes you talk about this very specific thing that is really cool and it's great to hear about, but you're not really going to apply it to your practice very much. Yeah, no, what, what this guy has to say, you're definitely going to apply your practice. So look out for that next episode. All right, Oscar, let's jump into some current events. So 
Obviously the first current event we have to get into, and I'm sure people will be wondering how have we not talked about this already is, I had a baby. I was gonna say, I'm hoping you're bringing up what I think you're gonna bring up, because if not, you're gonna take a beating <laughs> from your wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly, my wife, yeah. my wife would not be happy. Yeah. Plus, my wife is so tired these days, she's definitely not listening to the she's podcast. She's not gonna listen to it, no, that's true. But yeah, so like when you say let's bring up current events, realistically, all our current events that we're gonna talk about is about you. So yeah, the biggest one today <laughs> is, how is being a dad? It was really cool. I was really worried about the timing wise because obviously I'm working in the US and she's in Canada. So I had to come back in quarantine and then I had the Royal College exam, like the NDSC, obviously not the RCDC exam. That's another thing and, we're going to ask you about too, because that seems like it's all over the place a little bit too. So I want some clarification on what's going on with that. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. But honestly, the timing worked out so well. I, I was in Canada, I was quarantining finished my quarantine for the exam. The baby came the same week as the exam. So that wow. was a little bit stressful. Yeah. A little bit exciting. So, uh, you know, some sleepless nights before the exam. But at the same time, you know, just being there in the hospital and being able to be there together because of COVID, you're not allowed to have anyone else uh, in yeah, the that's hospital different, with you. So just eh? us two. Yeah. So it's different because you can't bring family members in. I will say as a first time parent going through it, it was actually a huge blessing. And what I mean by that is, we were forced for it to be only us two, but that yeah. means that you have to survive, just the two of you, yeah. you never have, having gone through this. It was such a bonding experience. You it was have such to make like it work. A, you have to make it work. Yeah. And it was just such a moment I felt that brought us closer together because, you know, we did this. I mean, let's be real. She did 99.99. You're taking a lot of credit here, but yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing. You know, everyone's wishing and they're saying, you know, they're only wishing the mother and people say, oh, how's the mom? How's the baby? No one ever says like, how's the dad? And I always used to think, you know, man, no one cares about the dad. No one ever asked the dad. And now I know why. Once yeah. you go through it once, you're like, the dad does nothing. You don't even care about yourself anymore. Yeah, no, I don't even care anymore. I just say, how are you doing? How's the baby doing? You just realize that, you know, your your dad, your job as, as the father there and, you know, so many of our listeners are married, engaged, maybe they're single, maybe they're dating someone, but this is something that a lot of them will go through eventually or have been through. And they'll be able to relate that your job there is just to provide emotional, physical support, you know, get them water, hold their hand, give them a massage, just really provide encouragement. So that's what I tried to do my best at doing that. Coming from a medical background, a little bit challenging because, you know, when the nurses are speaking to the, the OB and they're doing test stuff, you know what the results mean. Yeah. And you, you know what things mean and what are kind of warning signs. Whereas my wife is not from a medical background, so she won't realize that. So, for example, during labor, the nurse pages the doctor and says, we have a Brady come in the room. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, that means a bradycardia, heart rate's yeah. dropping. I know that's a warning ah. sign during labor. We've all done our OB rotation. So the doctor comes in and he's explaining things and I, I'm getting kind of worried, but I don't want to show that because my wife doesn't know what that means. So you kind of want to You don't want to add strength. to it. Yeah. You don't want to add to it. So just little things like that. But honestly, such a, an amazing experience. I will say all the cliches are correct. You know, it's a life-changing experience. Instantly, all your priorities change. Everything about work and oral surgery. Matter is a little bit less. A, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's not so much it matters less because you still love what you do and you love your work, but you realize that it's not... It never really was the meaning of life, but it's just so pales in comparison to now you have this kid and all you care about is a kid. So yeah. work becomes kind of like, I enjoy my work, but I also need to make sure I can provide for my child and yeah. provide for my family. Yeah. You know what I mean? Things become a little secondary for sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So really, really awesome experience. Baby's healthy. Uh, it's a boy named Lennox. He's with mom right now. I try and go back when I can. There's quarantine rules and things like that. And also I can't really be away from the fellowship for extended periods of time. 
I was really happy they managed to give me two weeks of paternity leave. So I did get to be there for the first two weeks, which was great. So that was awesome. So to wrap up the baby talk, it's that everything's been great. Baby's delivery was a success. Baby's doing well. Mom is doing well. You're getting to visit every once in a while. Put, yep. you put your life into perspective, but that's that's pretty amazing. That's really, really exciting. And honestly, when you told me that was happening, I was super excited for you. On another yeah. note, because again, you've been the one that's been so busy. I kind of just wait around until you want to talk to me and say, okay, let's talk about something new. How did the exam go? Yeah. So then, you know, baby comes, you're focused on that. You're just happy, healthy baby. Mom's doing okay. And then you're thinking, oh, I have this thing called a board exam coming up in a couple of days. That I've been preparing for for six years. Exactly. Yeah. So wrote the NDSE. It was at a Prometric, you know, monitored computer area, but it wasn't computer based. It was written. Going in, I was really nervous that it was written because I thought, you know, you'd just be writing for six hours kind of thing. But it really was just short answer. Some, a couple of questions were like longer answer, like outline your approach and stuff like that. But most of it was just short answer bullet points. I actually thought it was a really fair exam. It was divided into two parts. I thought the first part went very well. The second part I did find more difficult, more challenging. It's tough for me to comment on the exam because I obviously have not received the results well, that's yet. What, that's what I was going to ask you. You haven't received results, right? So like, even though you, you kind of feel comfortable, you don't really know just yet. Exactly. Yeah. So we haven't received the results yet. So we're still waiting to hear back. So it's tough for me to comment on uh, exactly how the exam went or like that. You know, I need to be sensitive to the fact that I need to find out my result first, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So maybe when I find that out, I can I can offer more information. But for now, I would say that thought it was a really fair exam. I thought it was very professional. Like the, the questions were appropriate. They made sense. It was well-structured, well-organized. That's all you could really ask for an exam, right? Like you just want to be tested on things that you've learned, not these random esoteric things that you really, it's like, when are you ever going to be asked? So that you say that it's fair, that's all you can ask for. And then the result yeah. just depends on the, the work you put in for it. Don't get me wrong. There were definitely some esoteric questions that I was like, where is this coming from? I've never heard of this. There's no way I would ever know this again. Yeah, that was definitely in there. But I think when you look at an exam, you know, the point of this exam is for patient safety and to determine competence. Right. You can't determine overall competence or common sense without an oral exam. So if you're going to do a written exam only, you're really looking at, you know, basic knowledge and safety. And I feel like, you know, a large majority of the exam was like bread and butter oral surgery that if you studied for the exam or if you went to like a good program. You would be ready for, yes. You should be ready for. Then there was a a section where, you know, if you studied it or if you went to maybe a top tier program or if you'd done those surgeries or if you just could reason and kind of work through it, you'd also be able to get those questions. And then there was this final section of questions that was just like really difficult. You either knew it or you didn't. Really tough. Try and get part marks here and there kind of thing. But overall, the bulk of the exam I thought was fair because the proportion of common questions to difficult questions to impossible questions was a fair ratio, in my opinion. And and that is the key right there. And so you kind of brought up a good point, too. You didn't have an oral this year. So what's what's going on there? What's the plan with that? So there was no oral component. The RCDC has said that they're still planning on doing an exam. I think it's oral only, but we still haven't even clarified what's going on there. We haven't heard much news. Nope. Still don't know when. It's supposed to be next year, though. So they are looking to come back next year. Now, get this. The first thing I'll say about the RCDC is I got, you know, a letter in the mail that my application to be a provisional fellow Mm -hmm. with the RCDC was approved. Now, for those that have listened to a previous episode, you'll remember what the RCDC is doing is they're offering a provisional fellowship to everyone this year that you can pay for and become contingent on you writing the exam next year. Or as soon as they offer it. it. 
or as soon as they offer it, as yeah. soon as you write the exam and the results are released, if you pass, you're a full fellow of the RCDC. If you didn't pass, it's done. If you didn't write the exam, it's done. So it's like a conditional fellowship. And we had commented on the fact that this doesn't do anything really because you can't get a license with this conditional fellowship. You can't actually do anything with it. So it's really a name only thing that doesn't really matter because next year you may or may not have it and it costs money. So I don't know. I thought it was kind of pointless to be honest. And when I got the letter, the funniest part is it says I'm entitled now to use the FRCDC dash provisional designation, <laughs> like on my letterhead, on my website, if I had one on my practice. Is it just me? Or if you saw someone, a surgeon, at, and then their name or whatever, it said FRCDC dash provisional, I would think they're on probation. There's, or they... no, there's no chance I'm going to see you as a patient. Yeah, no yeah, chance. Yeah. Like, like it, honestly, if I'm you, that designation is not going on as long as it has to say provisional because it doesn't put any confidence in a patient. Like they, we know why that's the term provisional is there, but they have yeah. no idea. They're going to think I'm on probation yeah, for sure. For sure. And they take one or look, they take one look at you. They're like, this guy's on probation for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's no way. Yeah. Definitely kind of concerned. Hopefully if it's early next year and I'm able to take it and pass it, then I would hopefully find out the results before I start work in July nice. or maybe shortly after. That way I don't actually have to use this yeah. provisional fellowship at all. Yeah. But I think it's good to have just in case, you know, it's delayed again. You never know what's going to happen. So at least I can have this in the meantime. I will say, you know, chatter online amongst these all these different specialties and residences. There's a lot of people that are saying they have no intent of writing this exam. Like we talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts. And there's a lot of people that kind of are in my practice, my private practice, that, that have some sort of relation with the, the college. And, and, and I brought it up to them too, like outside of the podcast saying that for our specialty, the specialty of oral surgery, I think it does make a difference. And most people will try to get the fellowship or apply to it or pay for it or take the exam. In a lot of the other ones, I don't see the point. If they don't bring this exam back quick enough, they are going to lose interest in all of these other specialties and they're just not going to apply to take the exam. Yeah, there was one um, Facebook group of all these different residents from all these different specialties in Canada, and they were kind of doing a poll, like, are you registered? Are you planning on registering? Are you not going to write it? Are you not sure? The overwhelming majority said they have no plans on writing this and they're not registered. The only people that have registered or said they were planning to, I found, were mostly oral surgery residents, including myself. Yeah. We've talked about the fact that what does this RCDC even mean going forward for us? You know, as oral surgeons, I think we like it. We like the higher level of examination, the higher level of designation. Also, the networking and the collegiality of being part of this fellowship with all of each other. And, you know, we, we value, obviously, education as shown by this podcast. We value academia. We like to work in a hospital to do these cool surgeries. So it matters more to us. That's but the key right there, I think. I think the OR hospital privileges, there will be a designation or differentiation if you have an FRCDC or not. So that's why it matters, I think, to our specialty. But the only other specialty it may matter to a little bit is, is oral class. Because again, they'll, they may want to read in a hospital and so they may need that specialty. Mm. But other than that, yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. For, for ortho, for endo, what does that provide them? It doesn't provide them anything. Yeah. All the orthodontists have pretty much said that no, yeah. there's no point writing this because no one even knows about this RCDC. So if you're a patient, you go to their website or you just, you know, they're working. So you assume that they're licensed, right? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, big concerns about that. We're gonna have to see what they do. Hopefully an oral exam early next year so that everyone can write it. And I heard a rumor that it might be virtual. And I'm just thinking, why didn't you do it this year? Yeah. yeah. You had the exam ready. Yeah. 
if you could have done it before the NDC, after the NDC, if it's a virtual exam, why didn't you do it this year? And I feel like if they delayed because they want to do it in person, I mean, they could always say that, right? That yeah. was their kind of one ticket. But if it ends up being over Zoom or virtual, it's like, come on, you could have done this earlier. I mean, the G7 summit is on Zoom. The Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook and the Google CEO are testifying before Congress via Zoom. I'm sure we can do an RCDC exam. And again, a lot of the things that we, we want to be clear here, because I think you you think the same way, it's not that we're knocking the FRCDC because we both want to be a part, like I'm a part of it, yeah. you want to be a part of it. It's that we were both realizing that if they don't get this together soon, people are not going to care about them. And they're going to- We're trying to save, yeah, we're trying to save them. We're trying to help lose them. that prestige. And so, and so that's why we're a little bit irritated or kind of just trying to call them out a little bit. It's not because we don't like them. That's actually the complete opposite. Yeah, totally agree. So anyways, we'll, we'll wait to see more updates on that and, and we'll, we'll keep everyone updated as we find out more. All right, moving on. Let's get to some CAOMS news. We actually have a ton of stuff to talk about. First thing is the 2021 meeting. So next year's annual meeting is actually a joint meeting with Amos. That's and exciting. it's supposed to be in Nashville next September. Let's really hope that travel is allowed. You know, maybe there's a vaccine. I don't know what's going to happen, but really hope this meeting happens because it's joined with Amos. So it's always a huge meeting and it's in Nashville. I've never been to Nashville. Oh, I would love to visit that'd Nashville. That'd be so exciting. Like, I really do hope that travel restrictions are lifted by then. Yeah. So that's something to keep on your calendar next September. Oscar and I have something really, really special planned for that meeting. We won't go into it now. No spoilers, but let's see if the meeting happens first and yeah. travels allowed, and then we'll go into more details at a future time. But we're cooking something pretty good. We've had a bunch of CAMS webinars slash meetings since we last spoke. There was a CAMS social media meeting and annual general meeting. I attended that. thought it was very, very good. I really like the social media presentation. I just, you know, we kind of talked about this before, but yep. this is just becoming the norm. People are looking people up on Google. You have or, to. You have to be part of you it. You have to be part of it. And I think it just really helps with marketing and increasing your number of referrals. And the problem has become that it's not, I don't even think it's a differentiator at this point. It's its more of a negative. Whereas if someone tried to look you up and they can't find you on Google or can't find your website, it's what's wrong with think, this Who guy? is this person? 100%. Yeah. Like what's, why doesn't he have this? It's not, again, yeah. like you said, it's not a differentiator. It's now the norm. If you don't have it's it, now the norm. you're seen as there's something wrong with this guy or girl. Exactly. So really enjoyed that talk with the AGM. We had the transfer of power. And one thing I realized, you know, Oscar, we kind of messed this up. We have both been past presidents of the CRAOMS, so the resident uh, association of the COMS. And at no point during the podcast did we plug the CRAOMS. Did we talk about, you know, becoming a member <laughs> no, or we applying for... No. Yeah, we, we totally dropped the ball, especially, you know, when we did our segment on new residents and what they should do textbook-wise. We really should have put this in, so our bad. But... We just wanted to give a plug for the CRAOMS. You should absolutely join if you're a resident for the following reasons. Number one, it's free. Number two, it's like a PDF form you fill out. It takes two minutes. Number three, it keeps you up to date on all the things going on in the COMS and with the Residents Association. It shows support for the association. You get a $300 gift certificate for a textbook of your choice if you join the CRAOMS and the CAOMS. I think it might be in your first year, but it is your you know, they year. might make exceptions yeah. if you're later on, but it's supposed to be your first year. And if that wasn't enough for you, which I don't know how it couldn't be, when you graduate your first year of membership after, as long as you were a member of the CRAOMS, is free in the CAOMS. So you get a, a year free of membership to test out the regular membership and see if you like it and things like that. So you know how we talked about things that you must do as a resident to prepare, or like these are the things that you can't miss? 
this is yeah. one. And again, I can't believe we didn't bring it up since we were both were past presidents of this association, but you really can't miss it. Like it's a no lose situation. It's only winning it's, here. Yeah, it's it's winning. Yeah. It's like this podcast, it's free. You can only benefit. Yeah. Except they give you a three hundred dollar gift card, we give you laughs, Zero. hopefully. <laughs> Zero. Yeah. yeah. So with that transfer power, we wanted to give the new kind of executive committee a chance to speak out. We'll start off with Miller Smith. He is hailing to us from Calgary. He's the new CA OMS president. And we wanted to kind of get him to introduce himself and kind of give us an update on things he's planning or things that might be happening this year. Obviously, Miller has been a huge supporter of the podcast from the beginning and really advocated that it should be continued and part of the CA OMS family. So Huge thanks to him for that. And let's hear from Miller now. Hi, Wendell. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Teeth and Titanium. This is Miller Smith, current president of the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. I have to say I am pretty impressed with this podcast and how it has gone live in a very timely manner, both due to COVID and alongside our CAOMS marketing and communication strategy. I've been involved with CAOMS leadership over the past nine years, and I'm excited to see the evolution of our organization. I want to give kudos to our past president, Kevin McCann, who had to navigate this very difficult COVID crisis. As you know, during this time, we were able to take time to launch our webinar series, our social media platforms, and we are about to launch our new website. I do appreciate your involvement with our first episode of our webinar series. Our plan is to offer a webinar every month this year with sponsorship provided by our multiple industry supporters. Our plan is to continue to offer multiple value adds to our surgeon members with several services being offered through our marketing team at Conowolf. Please continue to watch for updates as the year goes on. We have had good feedback from our virtual social events held after our webinars, and we are looking at evolving these opportunities over the year after certain events. Our ongoing goals are to offer standardized training for our members with future difficult airway courses. Our past one in Calgary at our yearly annual meeting was a success, and we are planning on hosting yearly events for surgeons on both the East and West Coast, alternating with Calgary, Toronto, and a site either in Montreal or Quebec City. We are trying to continue to evaluate our recent changes to licensure exams with the NDEB running the NDSE and the need for our members to continue to support the RCDC. We have an upcoming combined annual meeting with AAOMS in Nashville, September 27th to October 2nd, 2021, and are eagerly planning a list of lecturers and topics to make the meetings exciting and pertinent to our Canadian membership. While we had our first half-day symposium scheduled for the European Association of Craniomaxillofacial Surgery this past September in Paris, France, unfortunately, it has been rescheduled for this upcoming July 2021, and we are hopeful that our organization can represent this meeting appropriately. We additionally have plans to represent the ICOMS in Glasgow, Scotland. Unfortunately, this meeting has been postponed to 2022 due to COVID. We are all navigating these uncertain times and the difficulties that COVID has thrown at all of us. All we can do is continue to recruit keen volunteers to help us promote our specialty and roll with whatever the pandemic throws our way. Wendell, I hope this helps convey a little bit as to what we are doing at a leadership level at the CAOMS. Please let us know how we can continue to support your podcast. All the best, and I hope to hear from you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Miller, for those kind words. 
And the next person we want to hear from is actually the new CRAOMS president, Alero Boyo. This is a uh, big news because it's our first female president. I really like it when the presidents kind of rotate around yeah. the different programs, just because you get representation from everyone. And also you get to hear different opinions about what they want to learn about or what they want to do. I really, really enjoy that. We've had now Dalhousie, McGill, Toronto. We're still looking, you know, for there to be one time, maybe someone from Laval or Western. Yeah, we want to go a little bit west. Manitoba. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if we can incorporate the other programs, so highly encourage everyone to apply or contact Alero to see how they can apply. So let's hear from Alero now. Hi, Teeth and Titanium. My name is Alero Boyo, and I'm the current president of the CRAOMS and a PGY4 resident at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Prior to moving to Halifax, I did dental school at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland, followed by a GPR at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and a non-categorical internship at the University of Michigan. One of the things I'm hoping to do as CRAOMS president this year is host a short virtual meeting just for the residents. The plan would be to invite a few recent grads as speakers to talk about subjects such as things they wish they knew or did during residency, navigating the search for a job, life in academic practice versus private practice, and their decision to pursue or not pursue fellowship. Hopefully, this will occur at some point during the winter months and provide an opportunity for residents across the country to connect, given that we didn't get the chance to at the annual meeting this past June. If any listeners are a member of the CRAOMS and have any suggestions or feedback, feel free to reach out and send an email to craoms.executive at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, Alero, for sending in that message. Really like the initiative she's planning. She wants to set up some resident events, maybe a webinar specifically for residents to talk about pertinent topics. I think that's a really great idea. That's and hopefully we'll be able to, yeah, exactly, be able to support it in some, in some uh, fashion. Now, one thing she mentioned is, you know, in this webinar, they, they do want to talk about maybe fellowships or reason to do fellowships, reason not to do. I think this is a great topic. We had already planned on doing a future episode on kind of fellowship based, talk to some people that have done it, talk to people that haven't done it. Why would you want to do it? And what are the different experiences? So we'll save our discussion on that for then. I will say coming from a place where I've obviously done a fellowship and it's heavy on orthonathic, yep. a lot of people ask me, hey, you're coming from a Canadian program. You guys do orthonathic. Do you not do enough? Like, why would you do a fellowship in that? And we'll save our talk for another time. But let me just put it this way. In the past you know, month, I've seen and performed triple jaw surgery with genioglossus advancement for obstructive sleep apnea in an office outpatient setting. And in total, the surgery took two hours, 15 minutes. Yeah, like, come on. Like, this is not stuff you're seeing, no. you know, in your residency. For the rest of the surgical experience, you know, I've seen things like inverted L, Z, techniques of using a reciprocating saw for the entire procedure only, increasing your efficiency. And it's not just that, you know, you'll do all these cool cases that you can take pictures of and talk about forever, but it's really just gaining some autonomy. Yep. For me, all the orthodontic cases are with the staff. So I'm supervised and I feel you know, I'm getting better. I'm getting and more confident and more them. efficient. Yep. Still learning under them, learning their technique, which is just phenomenal. But at the same time, I'm responsible for the trauma and infection in the call service. So and that's all you. Anytime there's, yeah, anytime there's a trauma, it's just me and the resident going in and I'm the staff. It's my license and I have to walk them through the case. In the past two weeks, we actually did five, I'm not even kidding you, five subcondylar fractures opening. Oh, that's great. Five. Now, obviously, it's not like that every week, but yeah. just a pat, we did five of that. We did you know, a bunch of bodies, a bunch of angles. And you just, it's cool to walk through a resident, figure out 
What am I comfortable with them doing? What am I comfortable with me doing? What am I comfortable not doing? I do think that teaching someone really shows you your weaknesses and your strengths. Because once you start to feel that you're in one of your weaknesses, you will automatically take over because you don't feel comfortable enough letting them do something. Exactly. And part of it is pushing yourself to realize, you know, you might feel a little bit nervous, you know, opening the subconscious approach. We talked about transparent, I think, in our first episode. And yeah, I'm nervous about the facial nerve. But I'm way less nervous if I'm controlling it and I can blame myself and I know what happened. You're walking through a resident and they're great because they're 50 years. They're from Louisiana, LSU. So they're they're very talented. Man, you're nervous. And in the end, it's your respect for our staff. Oh, like, you know what? That's such a that's that's such a good point. I think people who dedicate themselves to be academics and teach residents are a different kind of animal because they do have to deal with the nervousness and uncertainty that a normal surgeon doesn't have to. Because not only are they dealing with the surgery, they're dealing with teaching somebody else the surgery and sometimes not being in full control of the consequences of that person's actions. Gave me so much more respect for the staff that have taught us. You just realize all the crazy stuff they're letting you do, especially when you're a new resident. I mean, I'm with 50 years. So as I said, they're very experienced and I'm kind of teaching them nuances and also getting them more experience. You know, they might have not have done uh, an opening a con all that frequently or done certain things, but yeah, it's uh, it's nerve wracking, but it, it's a good lesson. So anyways, we'll get into kind of a full fellowship talk another time. I don't want to go completely into that now, but I did mention on a previous podcast that I was going to do a cleft orthognathic case for the first time, not in the sense that orthognathic surgery on a cleft patient. I've done that obviously many times and I know you have as well. This was a patient with an unrepaired alveolar cleft oh, nice. that was getting a Lafort surgery. So we talked about previously how, you know, when you read the textbook, it could be you graft at the time of the Lafort. You do a segmental and close the gap. Mm -hmm. You can leave it not repaired, but almost no one does that. These are kind of your options. So what happened for this case, I just want to give a quick update because I said I would, is we actually did a Lafort and grafted at the same time. So we kind of repaired the alveolar cleft and did the advancement and everything at the same time. A couple things I will tell the listeners just because maybe people haven't seen this or done this before. But one thing that's kind of obvious but is weird to see is it's a segmental Lafort almost before you even do anything. Yeah, it's done. It's mobile. It's done for you. Yeah. it's kind of done for you and it's the segments are mobile. So that's a little bit strange, although you have to anticipate that the alveolar cleft is the same repair, very similar as you would do if you were just repairing the alveolar cleft. The problem is you have to deal with this Lafort incision as well. You have to think about blood supply. You have to think about not contaminating the graft, getting adequate tension-free closure, especially with an advancement. So little nuances. It was a really interesting case and really enjoyed it. And so far he's healing well and everything's stable, but I will say our goal was to graft the cleft to close it. But even the staff I was with, Jim Howell, he said, we're very likely going to have to come back and graft it further for like implant replacement. He didn't think the bone stock is going to be viable enough for future implants without doing a secondary graft. But So that's also nice to know from his perspective, because you may not be there to see that final result by the end of your fellowship, right? Like when the implants are going in. So it's nice that he's telling you this, being like, hey, Wendell, don't be convinced that we're done here. Like if you end yeah. up doing this in your own private practice when you go back to Canada, realize that you're probably gonna have to graft it again. That's that's nice on his part in letting you know that. Yeah, exactly. So shout out to Jim Howell and Wahid Mohammed. Those are the two staff that I worked on that case with. Can I get another shameless plug in, Oscar? I, I, this, by the way, honestly, this is your plug. no spoilers. I have a lot of shameless plugs. I know you said current events is all about my life, but I got a lot of shameless plugs that have been building up for the past this couple months. This episode is all you. So you just you just keep rolling, buddy. That should be the uh, the title: shameless plugs. Yeah. So. 
last month in October, I was fortunate enough to do a webinar with Dr. Brian Farrell. The COMS asked him to do a webinar, and he was gracious enough to give me some time to talk about atypical osteotomy, specifically the inverted L and like real life cases that we've been doing here. I liked it because we actually, or I actually got to present real cases, real photos that I've been work, working up the patients here, doing the surgery here, post-ops of patients here. Yeah. It's not, you know, just some textbook yeah, yeah, pictures, no. No, not some remote you. pictures. These are yeah. real people that I saw, that I operated on, I got to see firsthand. So another kind of interesting talk in the future we can do about atypical osteotomies, but really, really enjoyed doing that webinar. I got very positive feedback for people. So happy about that. I think everyone that attended really enjoyed it. It had the, Miller was saying it had the highest attendance by far. So far, it was over 100 people. And the reason for that is not only is Brian Farrell obviously a very good speaker and people know him and they know he's a great guy. The topic orthonathic, we kind of talked yeah. about before, very relevant. Everyone loves it. You know, you're going to get a high attendance when you're talking about orthonathic. It's something that people can relate to, for sure. Yeah. Which kind of makes me feel bad for the other topics that might be not as relatable. Like, you know, for example, head and neck oncology. You know, 98% of, you know, Canadian oral surgeons don't do head and neck oncology. Carl Cuddy and I did a study back in the day when I was a GPR. And, you know, other than, you know, Nick McCool and Michelle Alakim at McGill, almost no one's doing, you know, true head and neck oncology, free flaps, reconstruction, things like that. But that means that, you know, if they brought a webinar on for head and neck oncology, it won't get as much of a crowd. But in some ways, I think it's kind of good. You should come on, especially if you're not doing it. You can see what the expert's doing, realize what they're doing. So when you refer that patient or when you're deciding what to do, you can pick up little things because you're never doing this yourself. And one, I think that's a huge point. But two, you can just see that colleagues in your field, what they're also doing, right? Things just that you're not doing, but just to see what the actual full scope of our field really is in certain areas. So I think it's impressive. And I do think people should try to attend more to things like that. Yeah. I agree. So keeping that in mind, the next CMS webinar is November 18th. So coming up in a couple of weeks from when we're recording this. So everyone should definitely check that out. And I'm sure it'll be a good one. I'll definitely be there. Next shameless plug I have for you. Now, this is this is a good one. Do you remember when we got fan mail from Ahmed from Winnipeg? It was relating to our, you know where I'm going with this. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was related to textbooks that we were we were setting up a textbook list for juniors and seniors and we got good feedback from him and he said really thankful for that and he recommended a couple of textbooks of his own one of them was the atlas of operative oral and maxillofacial surgery and both of us said we don't know that textbook i didn't heard of it it sounds good from his description yep you know we we didn't read it ourselves but the reason also we didn't read it is because there was a new atlas by Katamani and our staff had contributed to that and that was kind of the one we relied on so we said, like, thanks for the suggestion, but we have this other great atlas, so we don't we don't really need any more suggestions on an atlas, correct? Yeah, that, uh, I'm laughing already, but yeah. So I get a message from Brian Farrell, fellowship director of mine, says, I've been asked to do an update to chapters I wrote in a textbook. So, and also they're asking for two new chapters. So I'm assigning you a chapter, atypical osteotomies uh, of the mandibles, you know, inverted L, Z, C osteotomy, subapical osteotomy, like really cool stuff, real patients we've been doing, real examples. Yep. So I was pumped. I've never obviously contributed to a, a, a chapter in a textbook. Obviously, I knew it would be a lot of work, but definitely pays off. You know, you do a ton of work on this chapter and it's there for eternity. It's, it's worth textbook it. Textbook. With, oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, count me in for sure. Really, really pumped. I said, what, what's, the, what's the book? And he said, oh, it's, I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's the second edition of Atlas of Operative Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. So what hole did you want to go crawl into and hide? 
I was, oh, I was just thinking to myself, first of all, <laughs> not only is this the textbook that was just emailed to us and we said we've never heard never of it, we haven't read it, it yeah. and, and we don't really need it. Secondly, if I had just picked up that textbook, Brian Farrell wrote the entire orthonathic section. I could have read that in advance of the fellowship. Maybe it looked a little smart. I would have learned all those techniques in advance. You know, how stupid do I look no, now? No, that's actually perfect. That's a perfect story. So how did you get introduced to writing your first part, chapter in a book? Well, a book that I said I never read, I'm writing the second <laughs> edition of it. Yeah, exactly. So needless to say, I've definitely gone back and, and read read the textbook now. And uh, we're doing an update, so uh, hopefully they'll come up maybe next year. But it's going to be really good, especially the orthodontic section is going to be top-notch, really, really kind of up-to-date, state-of-the-art stuff. So yeah, something I'm super pumped about. Can't wait to contribute to this textbook, and I'll let you know how the process goes. Obviously, something we've never been through, so I'll be interested to see what the process is and how that works. And honestly, speaking about the textbook and all these other opportunities, so we've talked a lot about your fellowship, and we talk not just on the podcast, but we text all the time, and we talk on the phone. And so I kind of live vicariously through you on, on what you're learning and how you're experiencing it. But I think one thing that your fellowship deserves more credit for is not just the operative experience you're getting, because that's great, that like that's things that you're probably not going to get anywhere else, but the experiences you're getting to be part of these other academic settings, like being part of Brian Farrell's talk where he's giving the talk to COMS, that's probably not an opportunity you're going to get in your early career stage, right? And now being helping out writing another chapter in a book, again, you didn't even know this book. So like these are opportunities that you really wouldn't be exposed to. And someone like you potentially maybe has some academic aspirations or something like that. That alone is worth it for your fellowship. So I think that deserves more credit as well. Definitely. They wanted to bring a more well-rounded didactic experience this year. I'll give you another example that I completely forgot about until now. He is a reviewer on Jameis. Mm -hmm. And anytime an orthonathic paper is submitted, there's a chance that he becomes a reviewer. He gives that paper to me and says, review it, let me know your thoughts. And then he does his review and compares and says, you know, was your review accurate? And would this article be approved, not approved? What are your thoughts? Wow. He kind of takes our feedback into account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you learn kind of what happens on the other side of Jameis yeah. and publication and all that kind of stuff and what they look for. And what's and the criteria what the they're criteria? Meeting. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. So that's been awesome. And just from the, you mentioned the webinar, I'm not going to lie. I thought you know, when you get asked to do a talk, you go in, you make a PowerPoint, you kind of just speak and everything's fine. There's hours of preparation that go into this. He is looking up slides, what order to put it in, what photos capture that, how to make animations, make it more entertaining, avoid block text. He's like, people hate block text. You want tons of photos. So I just saw him putting hours into a presentation and you realize what it takes to be kind of top level on the yes. speaker circuit, be asked to make these presentations and make these talks. And how do you keep it engaging and entertaining for the audience? Well, that's the thing, right? Anyone can give a talk, but anyone, everyone can also bore an audience, right? How do you keep yeah. people entertained? How do you keep them engaged? How do you keep them wanting to come back that the next time you're going to speak, they're going to sign up again? Exactly. So that was, that was really uh, entertaining and you know, just fun to be part of. But I agree. It's, it's been really good that way. So the next topic we want to talk about is reimbursement for orthonathic in Canada. This is something that we mentioned on a previous podcast, because obviously here in the States, everything's kind of private insurance or they have to pay out of pocket. And, you know, you see these bills and they're massive, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, but we don't know how much they're actually receiving because there's insurance, there's approval, there's uh, overhead, there's, you know, co-pays, there's all this complicated stuff regarding insurance. So you don't actually, well, I don't know what the well, bottom line well, is. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you actually know what the bottom line is or do you not? I don't know what the bottom line is, but put it this way. I know, for example, you know, bimaxillary surgery, I think segmental Lafort, 
the insurance bill mm-hmm. is $70,000 US. Wow. So you're going to be thoroughly depressed when I tell you our numbers. <laughs> well, well that, but this is my point. This is why I want to preface it with that's the bill sent to insurance that includes surgeon fee, co-surgeon fee. So me operating as well. I don't think it includes hardware. Maybe it does. And then it includes, you know, virtual planning, anesthesia fee, facility fee. There's all these fees and stuff involved. So it, that's what the number comes to. But I don't know what the actual reimbursement rate is. Don't, they're definitely not getting, you know, 70000 yeah. per orthodontic case. Okay. But I have no idea where in the range after overhead and paying staff and all this stuff, it actually comes down. Where to. I do know it's going to be more than Canada for sure. But I don't know. I don't want people to think that that's what the final bill is because I don't know what the bottom line is. Okay. And so... Do you have, because I know you haven't looked up these numbers, okay, but do you have any guess? Like, what would you think the most, okay, so the most common mandibular procedure is a SAD when we're talking orthognathic. Do you have a guess how much OHIP reimburses? So I know that most of our listeners are are probably Canadian or Canadian residents or Canadian oral surgeons. So for those that are not, OHIP is, so in Canada, we do have all-encompassing healthcare that's covered. So the government covers our healthcare. So it's not, you're not billing to private insurance. This is what the government is funding us for our surgeries. So, do you have a guess on what a SAG would cost? So, spoiler alert, I had no idea before. One of my staff, Tony Shahadi, he reached out and gave me the numbers for Quebec. So, Quebec is RAMQ. That's the equivalent of OHIP. Yep. So, I'm sure it'll be a similar range. So, I, I do have some final numbers as well to compare. Okay. So, what is your if SAG you Quebec number? So, SAG in Quebec comes to... $1,474. Wow. So what do you think it's in Ontario? I'm going to guess, well, I, I don't know. I get, I, I thought reimbursement across provinces should be similar, but I'm going to guess maybe 1200. Okay. So you're close. It's in the middle. It's 1321 for a SAG. 1321. And then, okay. And, so and pretty, that's for pretty bilateral. Similar. You're doing a unilateral. Wait, I will say one thing though. The codes he gave me, it includes intermaxillary fixation. I don't know if your codes. Include- I'm not including that. There's another little extra code that you would add on for intermaxillary fixation. So it probably ends up being actually the exact same. Yeah. Or, or this ends up being less just based on how much it says IMF costs yeah. or, or is reimbursed. So it probably ends up being less actually in Quebec, which is, to be honest, that would be my guess. I think Quebec reimbursement is usually a little bit lower yep. than the rest of the provinces. I would agree from on that. What I've, from what I've understood. And so that's for bilateral though. So if you're doing just yeah. a single side, it's 792. Okay. Okay. And so then you're like, okay, 70,000 seems, I don't really know how much overhead they have, but I don't think it's well, going to be, the thing is I, like, I don't think it's going to be $78,000 worth of overhead. Yeah. And it's, and it's US dollars too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so then we go further down. We're not going to go to the other like mandibular osteotomies, but let's say a Lafort. Okay. Yeah. The other most common orthognathic procedure. Now we're talking about the upper jaw. What would you think that costs you? So my, in my mind, I would think a single jaw BSSO, single jaw Lafort, I, thought, I would think they would be the same. Mm-hmm. So you're right. 1321 if it's a one piece. Okay. Okay. And then do you think- Segmental, they give you like a little bonus if it's a segmental kind of thing? Yeah, they give you, so if it's in two segments, you add another $300. If it's in three or more segments, you add another $600. Okay. Yeah. So, so not bad. And so do you think, do you know if there is any difference between advancement, intrusion, or extrusion if you're doing a Lafort? No. Is, is there a difference? There is a difference. So. Okay. Don't tell me. So I would guess. Okay. So advancement, intrusion. So I got I would hope that down grafting is the most money. A hundred percent. You were right on that. You passed this trivia question. Yes. <laughs> so extrusion. Because <laughs> it's the most difficult. Exactly. Right. It's, the, it's literally stable. Like usually you, you might have to graft for it. And so when you look yeah. at it in the sense, so it's 321 for intrusion or advancement and it's 399. So 1400 for an extrusion. Mm. 
Okay. Yeah. Huh. I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have guessed that they would specify that. I don't know if they're trying to do it based on level of difficulty or time involved, but I, hmm, I, I, I don't, I, I, I was that. actually surprised. I will. And then the other things, like you kind of said, there are other little small codes that you would add. Like you would add, like there's another hundred dollar code for rigid internal fixation. If, again, if mm. you're doing a segmental two pieces, it's, a, it's 300 extra dollars. If it's three pieces or more, it's 600 extra dollars. So these are not the final total, but that's what you're, the big bulk of your surgery, that's what you're expecting. Yeah. And so the only other one that we didn't talk about is, do you know what a genioplasty is? What they would cover for that? No, I'm going to guess it'd be less. I'm going to guess 500 bucks, 800 bucks. So good guess on the first one, 552 for a genioplasty. It's not a lot. No, no. Especially considering, you know, every orthopedic surgeon I talk to always says, they hate genoplasties because they almost always have uh, sensory de deficits afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's not time consuming, but it's the time consuming after when you're speaking to the patient about the sensory yes. deficits, right? Like in the OR, yeah, all the it's going to take you no all time. The, yeah, all the nerve testing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is good. So at least we've, we've got a kind of a picture. Now, did you manage to find any numbers on SARPies? Because I'll be honest, here in Charlotte, they don't do a lot of SARPies. They really just do segmental efforts a lot, a lot of the time. And so a SARPI would just be charged as a Lafort here. It, so like a two-piece Lafort. Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be its own separate like SARPI code. Now, there is no SARPI so, code here. So yeah, that's what I had thought. And I know shout out to Michelle Elakin, one of my former staff. He loves SARPIs because he says it's a two-piece Lafort that takes 45 minutes. Yes, yeah, hundred percent Right. And it's a day surgery, they go home. The reason we want to get some numbers is just so that, you know, our American listeners can kind of relate. People in different provinces and people that maybe aren't doing orthopedic can realize that, unfortunately, it doesn't really pay well for your time. And we're quoting, you know, thousands of dollars, which is great. And, you know, the surgery may take you two hours, three hours, four hours, depending on what it is and your experience and how many you're doing. But even if you're super fast and you're doing, you know, two, two and a half hours, the issue is that's just the surgery. There's initial consult, Planning. there's follow-ups, there's planning. There's, you know, impressions or intraoral scans or CBCT or CT scans. There's the post-op. There's like endless post-ops sometimes. If you're depending taking on how things it go. for a time commitment for a reimbursement, it's a no-brainer. that That's not why you're doing it. Exactly. You're going to do a BSSO with fixation with maybe a couple other things, maybe get around $2,000 before tax. You could have done a set of wisdom teeth in what, 15, 20, 30 minutes? And you never left your maybe have Maybe have one follow-up, yeah. maybe? And you've never left your office. And after that, you can see another four, five, six set of wisdom teeth that same day in your office, right? You actually brought up a great point when we were talking about this before, is that it's not even so much the reimbursement that's low, especially considering how much time goes into it. It's the fact that you're hamstrung. You're at the hospital during turnover, you're not doing anything. You have to get there early. Yeah. Pretty much all phases, your your whole day's blocked off. You, you really don't have time to do other things and if you're the single owner of your own practice that means your practice is also down because you're not working there that day yeah so i mean we're both passionate about this stuff because we like orthognathic surgery we like these type of procedures that we've been trained in and we've been doing but can fully understand you know owners of practices or people at the stage in the career or people that have debt people that need to make money you know sometimes they'll just say i just i couldn't justify it financially and and we understand why especially you kind of need to do a certain amount of patience, I feel like, to get into a workflow and get everyone comfortable, get your staff comfortable and be fast at it. If you're doing like five, you know, a year, is it really how fast you're going to be, how efficient you're going to be, and is it going to be worth your time? And, and so I think what you 
just said there makes a lot of sense. One is that, yeah, some people may have reasons for not doing it, but some other people may just not be able to do it. Because let's say you finish residency, you join a practice that doesn't have OR time for the first five years. You really think you're going to go back to start doing this after five years of not doing it when you've become so inefficient, where you really don't have the patient population to do more than five, six, 10 cases a year. It's going to be really hard to convince those surgeons to go back to doing this because it just doesn't make sense. You're good at what you practice. Exactly. So interesting to see what our listeners think and how they feel about, you know, doing orthognathic or why they do or why they don't and what they what their thoughts are on reimbursement. But I think it was nice to get some numbers on that. So thanks to Oscar for looking that up. And thanks to Tony Shahadi for sending some stuff in. Next thing we want to talk about is Amos obviously was canceled this year and they did a virtual event. I had submitted my abstract in to present on the five minute splint, something, you know, that's currently just actually been accepted to IJOMS for publication. Nice. Congrats. So I was pretty happy about yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And I think when it's actually published and the final things out, we'll be able to talk about it more in detail. But what I wanted to talk about was, you know, Amos went virtual and you have to record your abstract and things like that, but they gave five minutes to each resident to present and they lined up 12 residents presenting five minutes each for an hour. And then there'd be some time for Q&A. And it just got me thinking about this whole, you know, concept of resident presenting at meetings and length and oral versus posters and stuff like that. And we've both been there. When you do research and you're looking to present at a meeting, sometimes your motivation is that's the only way your program will fund you to go to the meeting yep. is if you present. Sometimes your motivation is you're really passionate about the project and you want to show it off to as many people as you can or get feedback mm -hmm. from international people, other people at the meeting. Sometimes your motivation is, you know, resume booster. I did research, got published. I want to apply to fellowship. At a conference. Yep, yep. Exactly. So there's so many reasons to do this, but I don't know. I just feel like we need to reevaluate how we're doing this because I think we're presenting too many research projects for not a lot, not enough time. Yeah. It's like, impossible to properly present a research topic in five minutes. Like you're not giving the credit that it's worth the effort that was put right. into this project. Yeah. It sucks for the people that wouldn't have been selected to present. Yep. But I think, you know, if you half the number and double the time or even do three quarters or something, I think at the Canadian meeting, they, you know, it's oral presentation, which is much better. It's integrated into the curriculum, which is amazing. You get the maximum turnout. It's usually a little bit longer. I think it's about eight minutes maybe. So it's a little bit more generous and maybe two minutes for time. I just feel like, you know, we give these people hours to present on topics that may be interesting, may be new, might be just the same thing over and over again at these meetings. And then we kind of cram all these residents in. And a lot of the times I feel the residents are the ones stimulating new ideas, new research, and it comes yeah. up with sometimes like really cool stuff. Yeah. No, and I agree. Like, again, giving someone five minutes to present after putting in countless hours it just doesn't seem fair. It really doesn't. Yeah. And I just found it was almost impossible to get across all the information and the message you're trying to say. I spent the whole presentation trying to speak fast and get through all my material in five minutes. There was no flow. Yeah. There was no enjoyment. There was no humor. There was you no were just natural, getting it done. You know, That's all you were doing. Just trying to get it done, yeah. trying to get it as fast as done. So those are just our thoughts. Um, we'll see what happens with future meetings and kind of what they do for selections and how many people present, but just something to keep in mind. Next thing we want to talk about is, you know, we had Lee McFadden on talk about, you know, the McFadden technique. He calls it traditional orthognathic surgery. We call it the McFadden technique. And it made me realize something 
for those that haven't listened to the episode, you have to check it out. It's absolutely wild what his technique is. But basically, quick summary, he cuts the mandible, splits it on both sides, cuts the maxilla, down fractures, puts the entire complex in MMF, puts the maxilla in his final position where he wants it, fixates the maxilla, then fixates the mandible, done. By doing it this way, you don't need an intermediate splint. You might not even need a final splint. You don't even really need as much of the workup as required. He yeah. really is just cutting both jaws and putting, putting it in the where final spot and yep. putting it where the maxilla needs to go. So for full details, you know, check out that episode. He describes it in detail. But what I realize is one of the biggest reasons people are afraid to do mandible first is a bad split. Yep. And we're not talking about, you know, buckle plate fracture, lingual plate fracture. You know, these are manageable just with fixation. We're talking about a bad split. Is, a bad split, condyle shattered in the distal segment, things like that. And boom, you have a bad split, case is over, you're screwed. And it makes everyone super nervous about doing mandible first. But I realized something that, let's say you do the right side, everything goes well with the mandible. You do the left side, bad split, you're going to need IMF. Well, what are your two options? You can place the patient in IMF, wire them up for six weeks, case is over, pray that everything heals okay, go back months later, redo the case. And by the way, when you go back and redo the case, are you still doing mandible first? Who knows? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like that. That's even though, even, is a resident cutting or not? Well, even though think about it. Well, you'll notice I said the left side is the bad side. <laughs> you'll notice I, you know, you'll notice I slipped yeah, that in there. Yeah. The condyle, God knows where it is now after this fracture too. So maybe it's even an argument to do mandible first a second time. But anyways, that's one of your options, and you have to go and tell the family. We had a complication, you know, the, fra- the bone fractured, unfortunately. We weren't able to continue the case. We had to abandon, blah, 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 wired shut. This is the plan. Everyone's miserable. Everyone's sad. Sucks. Here's the alternative. Right side goes well. Left side, bad split. Okay, that sucks. Cut the maxilla, down fracture it. Put them in IMF. Put the maxilla in its final position using the final splint. Keeping in mind that the final splint's doing your occlusion, but you still yep. have to freehand where the mandible's going to, or where the maxilla's going to go, sorry. And plate the maxilla, plate the good side on the mandible. And then and the condyle lands where it lands. Condyle lands where it lands, and you put them in IMF for six weeks anyway. Yeah. So they're going to be fixated at the end like they would have been. But at least, hey, you're in the final position, maybe, that you hope to be in. And, and first thing people done. are going to say is, yeah, but you're just guessing. You're just guessing where the maxilla goes. And yes, you are. But Lee McFadden's saying that's the way he always does it. Yeah, that's his traditional orthognathic. Exactly. So I just think it's, you know, it might not be a reason for people to switch to mandible first, but I think it's a reason that the next time you have a bad split on a mandible and you're like, oh, I have to stop and abandon the procedure. I just feel like it would be an easier conversation to put the maxilla in the best spot possible and go from there than just abandon the procedure and have to redo everything months later on. Yeah, that, that, that is a tough conversation to have with the family. But again, it will be hard to convince and and you're saying this now because we're just talking on on a podcast. I want to yeah. see you make that decision when you're in the OR and you're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to wire them up for six weeks. I'll be back in six weeks. <laughs> exactly. Because I, I will say on the record, I mean, this is dangerous to put this on the record, but I will say as of right now, if that happened, I would do the McFadden. I would wow. cut the maxilla, final splint, put the maxilla where I think it's supposed to go and go from there. That's what I'm saying now Yeah. as a super new fellow junior surgeon. Yeah. yeah. You're right. We'll see what happens. If it, you know, if, if I'm unlucky and it, you know it, it happens to everyone, so I'm sure it'll happen to me at some point. We'll see what I actually end up doing. But I reached out to Lee. I texted him. I said, "Am, am I crazy? Is this what you would do? Is it, does this make sense?" He said, "Absolutely." Kind of funny note. He said, "Absolutely, that's what I would do." You know, I'd plate maxilla, fix a good side, and then uh, IMF for the bad side. But he said it in a way that he's like, "That's what I would do." Meaning he's never yeah. had the situation. Well, well, that's what he told us too. Like even when he was talking to us, he's like, "Well, we do the man." He's like, 
but you just shouldn't have a bad split. Like to him, yeah. you, you just should not have a bad split. Yeah. Exactly. So he he hasn't had to deal with this and he's doing hundreds. So shout out to him. Yeah. Now, the last topic of current events, this has been the marathon of current events, but think about it. We got almost three months of material to catch up on. We mentioned that we want to talk about life events and life, real life stuff related to oral surgery going on. One caveat we have to mention is anytime we're talking about real life stuff that pertains to us, there's only so much we can disclose in a public forum on a podcast. You know, we have other interested parties. We have our own families. We have financial issues that are difficult to talk about. Jobs. You know, we want to give as much information and experiences that we're going through because we're going through all these new experiences. But at the same time, people need to realize we also need to be sensitive to information being confidential or other people or, you know, just personal information. So our last topic kind of, you know, broaches that subject because one of the biggest news that has come out in the public media and the kind of oral surgery you know, sphere is that Dental Corp has officially bought Crescent Oral Surgery, which is obviously the place that Oscar, you're an associate at. And so, so that's the elephant. My first question. Yeah. yeah, this is the elephant in the room. And I'm sure people are wondering about this. So the first question I'm going to throw to you on behalf of the audience is, how did you find this out? And what was your reaction? So I, and again, kind of like you prefaced this, there is we were pretty open about most of the things we talk about. Obviously, there's some limitations on things that we're not, like very private, like contractual stuff that maybe we don't talk about completely. And I think the, the listeners will understand that. That being said, with regards to this topic, because in Canada, it is a big deal. We're kind of the first big specialty practice that has been bought. And we are. We are a very big practice. So so it was everyone kind of was like, oh, they were a bit in shock. It's a landmark deal. It is. It's a landmark it deal. It really is. And so the way I found out, our partners, kind of like I've been saying this, I don't know why I'm not pumping Crescent's tires. I'm just being honest. So just like we talk about everything else. This year, they have been very, very good to me the entire time since I've graduated. And again, we've been going through a tough year with the pandemic, but they have been really, really good. And this was no different. So when they were getting close to having this deal finalized, when they realized that it actually wasn't going to go through, all the partners sat down with me and Omar, who's the other new associate. We've been, we started kind of at the exact same time. And he's, he's been an awesome, awesome co new associate to work with. He's been great. They sat us down and they outlined the entire plan, the way they got to this reasoning, the reason why they sold, the reason why they thought this was best for the practice, best for their future and best for our future too. I'm going to give them lots and lots of credit that they not only were worried about their future, they, they really thought about me and Omar in making this deal as well. And there's a lot of good opportunities for me and Omar. So if you ask me, that's how they, I was informed of it through the partners kind of being very open with us and telling us when they, when they knew the deal was going to go through. And then your second question is, how do I feel about it? Maybe I'm too naive right now to know any better, but I'm very excited. Like it's a great opportunity. I think it allows our practice to grow exponentially. I think it gives me and Omar a lot of opportunities that, that maybe I won't mention right now. And the partners themselves have been great about promoting it, about informing us and keeping us updated on things. So I'm very, very happy about it. That's awesome. Yeah. So we can't get into obviously specific details, but one thing I'll say as devil's advocate is I'm sure the number one question is going to be, this is a landmark deal. This is a big practice in Toronto, a very well-known practice, very connected practice. You know, they have friends and colleagues pretty much everywhere in Canada. So this being one of those landmark deals kind of gets Dental Corp's foot through the door. Now, 
we can't, you can never talk about someone else's money, someone else's business, someone else's decisions. It's their life. They're going to do what they want. More power to them. The devil's advocate in me is trying to say they've let now Dental Corp through the door. They've opened the door and Dental Corp's walked in. Yep. Is this bad for the profession going forward now that maybe they're going to try and come after all the oral surgery practices? And, you know, we went to oral surgery because we love autonomy. We like small business. We like that aspect of it. And I'm sure the listeners, they love the owners. They love owning their practice. They love a lot of associates love the idea of maybe partnering in the future or buying in. So what does this do for the future of our profession and and kind of business? And then that's what I said when I said, like, maybe I'm too naive right now to know the consequences because, yeah, I can't predict that. And I can't speak on that because I can only speak on what has been told to me and offered to me an outline of what our future projection is. But yeah, could there be negatives associated? There could. Could I be too naive to see them right now? I also could be, but I can't predict that. I can't control that. So I'm going to go with the positive of this right now. Yeah, definitely. And the nice thing is, you know, this is a monthly podcast. You can always give us updates in the future. As of right now, you're busy, you're working, you're you're dealing with the day-to-day. Nothing's changed in your life. I I, Honestly, I, I couldn't, I have noticed no difference so far. Perfect. So something we'll track going forward, something we definitely wanted to talk about. And Oscar will definitely keep us updated in the future. And we'll see how this plays out and see what happens. So that is it for current events. Now let's jump into our journal club. All right, Oscar, let's get into journal club now. We have a ton of journal club to catch up on. We missed September. We missed October. We don't have time to go through articles in depth from all these different months. What we've done is we've highlighted just a couple of articles that we want to just fly through and quickly tell people about so they can go back. We didn't want people that published in September and October to feel like they were left out. So for September, we have outcomes and survivorship of Biomet microfixation total joint replacement systems results from an FDA post-market study. This is by Granquist et al., It has multiple well-known names in academia and the TMJ literature. For example, McCain. It was funded by Zimmer Biomet. So that's something to keep in mind when you're reading this article. Pre-screen. It's pretty much all OMF and research people. So we like that. Positive on that. We we haven't talked about this. Multiple people on article. You know, you see that all the time because it's just, you know, the resident and the senior resident and the staff or whoever's involved with with the paper. That's normal. But when I see multiple names from different institutions. I like that. Yeah. What about you? It just honestly makes me want to read the article more when I see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like multiple groups combining on something. I know it's so difficult to do that. So but it gives like credibility. Credibility for sure, right off the bat. Gives credibility. So basically this is an interesting article. So you know biomet fixation, it got FDA approval based on a 10 year study. Basically that allows them to do a post market surveillance study based on the class of device it is in the US. So in 2011, they ordered a review on all TMJ replacement companies to look at their products and answer questions about survivability, revision rates, et cetera. And this is from the FDA, so it's mandatory, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So basically, this caused them to do a massive study, 319 patients, almost 500 joints. It gives us some stats we can use going in the future because they had such a high sample size and and so many people putting these joints in. Yeah, like you can use these numbers pretty comfortably now. Yeah, I agree. Especially when doing a consult or talking to patients, the, the average age was 47, 86% were female. Uh, the average follow-up was eight and a half years in the study. Yeah, so that's, great follow-up. That's huge. Especially when it comes to joint replacements. You and I both know that 
it might be great for a little while, but other than nerve weakness and infection and surgical site, you know, issues, you really want to know, did these joints last and function for a long time? And like, for me, like we were a heavy EMJ program, right? Like we were doing a lot of joint replacements, but still you really only start doing this maybe middle of your third year operating and then a lot in your fourth year. So you're not really seeing long-term follow-ups for these joints. So this is a nice study to be able to see these eight exactly. and a half The years. most you could see is like a four-year follow-up, exactly. maybe if you were lucky. And that's either, and what, you're not even really part of that surgery in first year. You're not really doing any of the operating on a TMJ patient. Exactly. I actually didn't see a joint replacement until fifth year. Exactly, right? Yeah. I was just wasn't assigned to the ones when I was in younger years. So my first ones were the fifth year. So they said 86% had five or more years of data. 30% had 10 or more years of data. So really great stuff here. Yeah. Now, one pet peeve. They talk about SSIs, which is a subsequent surgical intervention. It's like, come on, bro. SSI is surgical site infection. Yeah. We can't, we can't just. <laughs> you can't just steal can't terms. Just, acronyms. You, you can't, can't steal. steal terms and acronyms no. and just drop acronyms. And, yeah. you know, people love to drop, drop acronyms in their papers, which is fine because it makes the paper easier to read. Yeah. But yeah. don't pick an acronym we're already so familiar with. And come that on. all of us are familiar with. <sighs> yeah. So it could mean either removal or reoperation. So the time to the first SSI was reported in 11% of devices, 7% was a reoperation, 4% was a removal. So that was good to know. Yep. Nine subjects required two interventions and one required three. And frequency of infection was 1.6%. So that's a nice number that's because we always think, oh, we know infection is devastating for TMJ replacements, yeah. but what, how often does it happen in this day and age? So they said it was 1.6%. Which is really acceptable. Really acceptable. Their mean interval to device removal was five and a half years. I think that's probably, you know, a barbell distribution. So you can have early ones due to infection and late ones due to like hardware failure probably is yep. what I'm thinking. Yep. So then the average is out. So they reported on survivorship data. They said 96% survival rate at three years, 94% at five years, and 86% at 10 years. So I thought that was pretty good. I think that's great. Like if you're asking for a TMJ replacement, those are some great numbers. At 10 years, 86%. Yeah, they said it was very comparable to the orthopedic literature, which has obviously tons more data Way on it. Way more data. But uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty good. So the discussion goes into more detail about diagnosis, pre-operation, post-operation, reasons for intervention, all the you know different details you want to go into. We won't get into it now because we don't have time, but it was, I thought it was a nice study just to get a large patient population and get some numbers that you can realistically use to discuss with patients. If you ask me, I really like this article. I like everything about it. Like you said, I like the, the big sample size, the ones that we can actually have data that we can kind of use in speaking to patients. And I also like the detail that we're not going to go over today that when they go into it, I, I think it was a very good, well-written, enjoyable article. Yeah. So TMJ lovers, definitely go check that out. Very good article. Next up, we're going to move to October now. And this, this, I just love this article. This was one of my favorites we've ever done. It's do speakers fully <laughs> disclose potential conflicts of interest in oral and maxillofacial surgery. It's by Durani, G and Peacock pre-screening. There's a DMD candidate. So a dental student, an MD candidate. So a medical student and an OMFS professor all of them at Harvard, super legit pre-screen. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that that's great. And honestly, I think the more that we start doing social media, the more we start doing virtual Zooms and all that, I think this is some, a topic that has to come up a lot because information and knowledge sharing and having these forums is so much easier now and so much more accessible. You really need to know what's going on behind the scenes and why these things are happening. Yeah, so passes our pre-screen test, you know, the purpose was to determine the accuracy of the disclosed financial relationships by speakers at an annual oral and maxillofacial surgery conference. So they looked at Amos 
2018, the Dental Implant Conference. And I didn't realize this, but in the US at least, there is an open payments database. Yeah, it's I part of the that. Sunshine Act. Yeah, I did not know that. It's called the Sunshine that. Act. And basically, it's if you're being paid by a company, you know, I think maybe in the medical field or related to devices or conferences or speaking on behalf of, of their products, it has to be publicly disclosed. Yeah. So you can go, you can Google open payments database. You can look up any <laughs> any lecture you want, and you can it's wild. This website is pretty insane. You can look up any person, you can see how much they were paid for which event, by which company, their total earnings. It's pretty nuts. I did not assume that it would be this open to tell you the truth. I thought there'd be a website saying, you know, Oscar Dalmeo is a paid consultant of X. Yes. Not they paid him this much for this On conference this and his lifetime, yeah, exactly. his lifetime earnings yeah. is this much. So open payments game is pretty wild, not going to lie. And basically they, they cross-reference what the speakers disclose as their financial conflicts of interest and the database. And what blows my mind is, I don't know if people don't realize that it's all on this website or they just assume people aren't going to check. Well, I mean, it's a good assumption because we didn't know this existed and also we never checked. Yes. But this is an amazing study because you can just compare what they published. You literally cross-reference their talk. Cross-reference. You look at their talk and you look at the website. Yeah. So here are the results, Oscar. 43 speakers included, 32 oral surgeons, 11 non-oral surgeons. 35 out of 43, so 82% had received payments relating to dental implants on the open payments database that were not disclosed. 82%. On average, speakers disclosed 0.65 companies, but the database for those same people, the average was two and a half. Again, just pretty much calling us all out. Again, 82%. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, we have only one sponsor for this podcast, you know, yet, as we said, you know, email us, reach out to us. We're for sale. We're listening. But exactly. We're we're always (laughs) listening. But even with our one sponsor, we have a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. You know, people are so used to, you know, the the intro and, and hearing about our disclosures. But if you listen to our disclosure, we have to specifically state what we're saying is not affiliated or representative of the CAOMS. And also, you cannot use what we're saying against us or for surgical decision making because we're telling you our experience. We're telling you what we're finding in the literature. But you got, you know, it's your license. You, you got to make your own decisions. You have to do what's best for you. Exactly. So I think we've done our due diligence and re- reported our conflicts of interest, but 82% of these people didn't. So their conclusion was continuing education conferences offer an avenue of knowledge transfer. However, the objectivity of the information presented could be affected by undisclosed conflicts of interest. The result from the present study have demonstrated that most speakers at an annual OMFS conference have underreported payments from companies relevant to the conference topic. So I love this article. I think it opens a huge window into conflicts of interest. I was going to ask you, Oscar, when you've been at the conference and a speaker comes to talk about whatever topic, and they report a conflict of interest, you know, it's like that's usually the second slide. Yeah. Does that alter how you think about the presentation, increase credibility, lower credibility? Like, does it affect you at all? What do you think? So to tell you the truth, it doesn't really sway me one way or another, unless I realize that a lot of the presentation is focusing on that one. Let's say they were sponsored by a product, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. the, what they're talking about is about that product. Then I'd be like, oh, not loving this presentation. But if they are just flat out and say, and they disclose, a lot of their affiliations because they just they are either in a teaching setting and they do have these or they just set up these contracts and the conversation really doesn't center around one specific one. I don't think it really changes my opinion on it. 
I think that maybe strengthens my belief in that because they're being honest from the beginning. Yeah. So I, w- I would say something similar. I think that for me, it's so dependent on the company and the speaker as well. I'll give you an example. If you have someone that's talking about mandibular trauma and they're paid consultant of Stryker and all the cases they present, you see Stryker plates and screws, all if they had VSP involved at all, they're using 3D systems and they're going through the cases and presenting and they're presenting literature and knowledge. I, that doesn't affect anything for me because I know that everything they presented was great and I can just sub in any other company's yep. hardware yep. or virtual planning and it's going to be the exact same thing. Yep. Unless but, they say this can only be achieved with Striker products. Exactly. Yeah. I was it's exactly. As soon as they start saying you can only do this with Striker hardware, then I'm like, no, that's because yeah. you're being paid by them. Yeah. That's not realistic. So it depends on what they're presenting. The other thing I feel that is if the topic, as you said, is related to a product where they're trying to introduce this novel new product where everyone should be using this and they're sponsored by that company, huge, huge credibility loss because, you know, the company's funding that to try and get people to buy the product. Exactly. So like, even if, even if you're right, even if the results are true, it's hard to not see it with some sort of bias, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, certain speakers will just have more credibility. You know, if Sean Edwards gets up and talks about a product, whether or not he's paid by them or not, I don't care. I think he's only going to talk about something he believes in and the literature is there. You exactly. Know what I mean? He's built enough credibility that you know he's talking about it, not because he's getting paid, whether or not. Exactly. So really, really enjoyed this article. Would love to know what everyone thinks about that. And I just thought it was hilarious. And maybe now that it's published and everyone's looking at this, maybe the that <laughs> disclosure num- rates will increase. I would say that number is going to drop. It won't be 82 moving forward. People are going to be much more cautious and, and disclose a lot more. Has to be. Yeah. Yeah, ha- yeah. It has to be more, I think. So that finishes of October. So now we finally move into the current month, November. Before we get into the article we chose, I do want to give a shout out, Oscar. Now, a shout out is different from a shameless plug. A shameless plug is a shout out to yourself. You know, yourself. Yeah. You're talking about yourself. A shout out's different. You want to shout out someone else that you like or something cool you saw. We love it when we see articles uh, in Jameis that are people we know, people we've worked with, people, our staff, former residents, friends. Yep. We did a recent article a couple episodes ago, I think, and Nick Letterhoff, who we both know. Yep. And you were resident with him. He had a publication. So that actually was one of the focuses. This one's more just a shout out. It's not going to be the focus of this episode, but first off goes to Nasser Al-Sharani and Nicholas McCool. Nasser is a former co-resident of mine, a really great guy. And Nick McCool, obviously former staff, really great guy. So they published Ranitidine impairs bone healing and implant osteointegration in rats tibiae. This is one of those, you know, basic science publications where they're looking at medications effect on bone healing. They're doing rat labs. They're really doing kind of research that most people, including myself, never really understand the process, the methodology and how you go about it, to be honest. We're just not clinicians that way. We're not researchers that way. But these are the type of research that leads to further development, further progress, and actually really shapes the profession long-term. So it's critical research, but unfortunately research that you and I never understand. Yeah, then that's what it is, right? And sometimes that you may not be that interested in because you don't understand it. Exactly. So shout out to them for that article. And a second shout out to another McGill resident, Jordan Gigliotti. He published Titanium Alloy Cutting Guides in Craniomaxillofacial Surgery a minimally invasive alternative to synthetic polymer guides. So he did this uh, during his fellowship with Ying and Morland uh, down in Alabama, head and neck fellowship. 
And what I really liked about this article is that it was very straightforward, very illustrative, and introduced people to a technology that's being used rampantly, especially in the U.S., but that no one really published about it. No one explained the benefits of it. So I think it was a great article. It just basically explained why using titanium guides is better than polymer guides because they're so thin that they promote minimally invasive access nice. and technique. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was a good article, especially as we said, people that do benign pathology or head and neck oncology, these are the type of articles that really open their eyes and say, man, can the company I'm working with do this? Can we get funding for this? Can we do this? And like you said, something that may be used a lot in one area, but because there is nothing published about it or not well spoken about it, you may not be using it somewhere else and it may make a change in, in the way you practice. So that's great. Yeah. Like one fact that I read that I had no idea about, because, you know, I have used these titanium cutting guides, especially here in Charlotte, we have used them for things. They did a bunch of benign cases of so probably like, you know, amyloblastoma, mm -hmm. all transorally because they were able to use these minimally invasive cutting guides. They just made a one centimeter incision in the neck for their uh, vessel anastomosis for their fibula. That's amazing. It was amazing. Like was, it, this is, this and like, and not phenomenal. just from a surgical perspective, from a patient perspective. Exactly. So shout out to those two. Before we get into our main article, another article I wanted to highlight because, you know, I really love this one, Oscar. I know you weren't as big a fan yeah, of it as I was. I knew you were going to love it. Okay. So it's called Power and Sample Size, an Opportunity to Optimize Randomized Controlled Trials in Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. So this is by Wang et al. Basically, I love this article because it's like two pages. It explains the problem, which is that all of our oral surgery studies are underpowered. Which it is true. Alpha error, which is true. And they, I think they found so either two-thirds or 83% were underpowered from their study. I think it was two-thirds. It explains alpha error, beta error, power. It explains false positive, false negative, true positive, true negative. Yep. Why these actually matter in publications, why it's important, how to figure out what your power should be, how to address this problem from the beginning, how to design your study to help with this. And it's like two pages and it's fundamental knowledge that every single person reading an article or planning on doing research or is doing research needs to know. You have to know this. Should be aware of this for sure. And so, yeah, like when you say I wasn't the biggest fan, not be, it's just because it is dry material, but it is very useful material. And so for that, I will agree with you that in this two, short two page summary, you get a lot of knowledge packed into it. Exactly. And we provide links to all the articles we talk about in our show notes for each episode. So you can just go down there and click it and get access uh, through however you normally do. But I can't recommend this article enough, especially for all the residents listening. Yep. Go click on this, read it. It's going to take you literally five minutes to read because it's two pages and it's really, really good. Okay. Enough shout outs, enough quick articles. We got to get to the meat of this. And our main article from November is Can Patients with isolated mandible fractures be treated as outpatients. This is by Lee et al. And pre-screen, it's OMAFest residents and staff, once again from Harvard. Now I will say the whole, you know, them being from Harvard, that doesn't really have weight for me. I know Harvard has a lot of didactic strengths and research strengths. I have heard, you know, they're very prominent didactic and research, maybe not so much clinical, but it doesn't actually affect me that they're from Harvard versus another university or program. All I care about is... To be blunt, I couldn't care less where they're coming from. Exactly. Yeah. You, got, you got to look at the quality of the study. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually a bias, authorship bias. You know, if you're looking at the name impresses you or the program impresses you, you're going to be biased to think it's more significant. You really got to look at the data and see if it's actually a good article or not. I agree. Um, however, this article we both agreed was very good. So let's dive in. The purpose 
was, you know, treating mandibular fractures urgently is controversial. Purpose of the study was to estimate and compare the rates of post-operative inflammatory complications, POICs, in patients with isolated mandibular fractures treated in a non-urgent manner by an outpatient protocol versus a traditional urgent inpatient protocol. First thing, enough with these acronyms. Post-operative inflammatory complications, POIC, that's not a real thing. Come on. While you were saying it, I was having trouble even, like, I can't even understand it. And And I read the article. And I'm like, that's just... We're not crazy, right? This is, this is not a known no. thing. You've never heard of that no, before, never, right? Never. I've never heard of it before. And then once again, I think they do it to make the rest of the article easier to understand because they're going to be comparing POC, POIC rates and stuff like that. But I don't know. I just feel like some of these acronyms are outrageous. So over the past 15 years at their institution, there's a shift in the management strategy for isolated mandible fractures requiring ORIF. The traditional approach was usually to admit patients from the emergency department or clinic as soon as possible regardless of their staff or operating room availability. At times, this resulted in patients being admitted for multiple days awaiting definitive management. The newer approach is to treat the patient with closed reduction and IMF under local anesthesia in the emergency department or outpatient clinic, discharge the patient home, schedule the patient to undergo ORF as an outpatient day surgery procedure. So a lot to break down here. First question is, is this a good paradigm shift? And I I would agree that The paradigm shift of moving from admission to day surgery is a great one. So the first question I have for you, Oscar, is how did you guys handle an isolated mandible fracture that presents to the ER? And so I think this is where, again, the difference will come into play when you talk to our Canadian listeners and our American listeners, okay? Because it's like, because of your fellowship, I've had some insight onto how things work in the States, and it is so different. It is really night and day a lot of times. I'm not sure how it was in Quebec for you guys, but I have talked to some other provinces, some other residents from other provinces in Canada, and they had a similar experience to us. So realistically, when I first started my training, so my first year, a lot of it was patient came to emerge, mandible fracture, we worked them up, emitted 3D, and then posted on the board. But a lot of our times, so we have a tier system at our our major hospitals, the ones that we operate here in Toronto. And so it's an A, B, or C case. And all of our mandible fractures were classified as C cases. And so that meant they had to go to the OR anywhere within the first 72 hours. But that's if they don't get bumped by a B or an A case. And so a lot of our times, mm-hmm. our patients are sitting NPO until they're told, oh, you can't, we're not going to take you to the OR today because we get told by the OR staff that we're not going to be able to go today. And then they start that little cycle again. When these patients are sitting in there three, four, five days sometimes, obviously that's not every patient. Some patients we're getting to go if the board is clear, we're getting to go much quicker. But a lot of patients are just sitting in hospital doing that cycle of NPO multiple days in a row. And I had a discussion with a Manitoba resident who in Manitoba, we know they see a lot of trauma. I thought maybe this is an isolated thing to Toronto hospitals. And they're like, oh, no, their average wait time was like six days because they did a study on it, which may not seem significant to our American listeners. But that is an OHIP or, again, government funded stay. We don't pay to stay in our, our patients don't pay to stay in these hospitals. Our taxpayers are paying to stay in these hospitals, right? And so we have to take that into consideration. So, and then as I progressed through my residency, and a little bit of change in staff or change in dynamic in our program, and we did shift more into, okay, can this patient be sent home safely? Can we put them in our elective OR time? Or can we keep them on call from home and treat them more as an outpatient? And then treating the fracture, sending them home that same day. So we, exactly. we did definitely see a shift in my, in my four years of training. Exactly. Something happened to me when I was in R1. We were almost admitting the patients and 
putting them on the board, NPO each day, trying to get it done. Same thing with the tiered system, ultimate disaster. Sometimes you got lucky, sometimes it was days and days mm-hmm. of them just sitting there. And they're annoyed with you and, and you're annoyed with the yeah. OR. Everyone's mad, but you know, there's nothing really you really can do about it. Definitely shifted over the course where pretty much by the end of my residency, everyone was, you know, go home, especially if they're reliable yeah. and, and no other, no other fractures, not sick, go home. We'll call you. Unfortunately, every day you got to be NPO yep. at a certain time after breakfast, and then we'll let you know if it's going that night and whether to come in or whether or not to come into the hospital. So it still was a lot to management, but way, way better than them staying around the hospital. They only had to come in as necessary. We would do a similar thing where you try and find an elective OR that maybe you have some room to add them to or just schedule it on a time where you know is available. But the problem is, you know, Canadian system, as you said, elective ORs, limited resource. You try and Hard pack all by. your patients in there. Hard to find time to add on. Yep. Totally agree with that. Obviously, the American perspective is totally different because, for example, here in Charlotte, you know, you get a call from the ED, there's a mandible fracture, you don't even need to see the patient. You look at the scan, you say, okay, give them pain meds, we'll give them a phone call, we'll book them in our clinic as an outpatient, you see them in the clinic, look at the scan, we book them for surgery, whichever day works for our schedule. Oh, on Thursday, I finish at two, I'll add it on or whatever day, you can line them up. Earlier this week, I had a Lafort in the morning and then nothing else afterwards. So I just booked three mandible fractures and that becomes your day. Yeah, like look at so, that. So totally like different that. world in the U.S. Like, doesn't exist in Canada. Night and totally day. Night and that. day. Yeah, night and day. But this was my problem. Their newer approach, which is almost like our approach, has this one thing that's wrong with it. They're doing closed reduction yeah. intermaxillary yeah. fixation under local in the ED? Yeah. or in their, What are they doing here? Yeah. I just thought that was excessive. Like, what are you doing? That's that's my exact question. What are you doing there? Why are you doing another procedure that's super uncomfortable for both you as the operator and the patient under local in the ED or clinic when you're going to take them to the OR? And one of the criteria was the patient has to require ORIF. Yeah. So this isn't even definitive treatment. And, you know, someone could argue, oh, displaced fracture is painful. Put a bridal wire in. Yeah. Just take five minutes. That that was my point on that too. And again, we don't know the patients, but on average, you're expecting that. Yeah, like you're already taking these patients to the OR. Why are you doing this extra treatment that the patient isn't going to like? There's no way they're going to be happy in the ED when you're doing this to them. Yeah, or even afterwards, they're they're what? They're an IMF waiting for an OR? That's even more miserable. Yeah, yeah. And if you do a mandible fracture within two weeks, you don't need to do closed reduction. You can just, it might be a little bit harder at the end of two weeks, but it's going to be pretty much the same procedure. Yeah. So I had a huge problem with that. I really didn't like that. But basically, they're trying to say, you know, is there a difference between the people that they admitted right away and try and do it as fast as possible or the people they sent home in IMF? Uh, it was a retrospective cohort study. Basically, you know, elective outpatient versus urgent inpatient. So they were, you know, they did find positive results in the sense that they had no difference in the presence or absence of po- POICs. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. You know, which the list includes malunion, non-union, osteomyelitis, hardware failure, infection requiring hardware removal, wound dehiscence, surgical site infections, or stitch abscess. I just want to let the author know, you know, when you list those as your POICs, there's another term. It's called complications. Yeah. Just say, what is the complication rate? That's all you have to say. And you can list what the complications you're looking at. So the secondary outcome they looked at was, you know, length of stay in days. And a hospital day was defined as inpatient status and, you know, past midnight. I thought this was day. important too. Yeah. I like that they include this as a secondary variable. Especially for but, us, like for Canadians. Yeah. Because we want to know, are we wasting our taxpayer yeah. resources, our hospital resources? 
So the results, they had 111 patients in the inpatient protocol, 82 in outpatient, so a total of 193. Good sample size. I really like that. So if there was an outpatient protocol, the average time from their injury to maximum mandibular fixation was 1.34 days. At first, I was like, this doesn't make sense because, you know, they're seeing them and doing the ED or clinic, but it's from injury yeah. to IMF. So that actually means they're seeing them pretty quick. So that must mean the person got injured. They went to the ER. They're seen right like that. I thought that was actually pretty good Yeah. because some people are delayed presentation or, you know, it takes a while. So I thought that was pretty good. And then from time to injury to open reduction internal fixation, which is what we really care about. If they were an inpatient, it was three days. If there was the outpatient protocol, it was six days. So it took double the amount of time to get the ORF done on an outpatient basis. However, remember, they're at home. Very different. Inpatient it's is not three. the same length so, of stay. Yeah. So three days, you know, in a hospital, resources, fees versus six days at home, waiting. Comfortable I mean, on your own couch. Again, well, maybe not comfortable because you have a mandible fracture, but still, you're going to be more comfortable being at home than you are going to be stuck in a hospital. Exactly. And for the outpatient group, the, on average, it was a length of stay of 0.62, meaning, you know, they go home the same day, it's day, day surgery. For the inpatient group, they spent an average of 1.3 days. So, you know, they're staying, that's before, sorry, before their surgery, 1.3 days. And then their overall stay was three days, once again, 3.16. So actually, what you can think of is that when they were admitted as soon as possible, it still took over a day yeah. to actually get the operation done. Yeah. And so it's not like just because you admitted them, you know, it's getting bumped up or it's getting done faster. And that's, that's in the States. That's not happening here. Oh, it's never happening here. So in their discussion, they talked about, you know, these inflammatory complications. They've long thought to be related to time to fracture repair, but things are shifting. You know, early studies said you really had to do things in the first 12 to 72 hours, but more recent studies with the larger sample sizes are showing, you know, times of injury to fixation of three to 16 days. And with rigid fixation, modern antibiotics, you know, it's not becoming as big a deal. And in their results table, they showed, you know, the total amount of complications inpatient was 21 versus outpatient was 14. So, and major was 14 for inpatient and five for outpatient. Tough to say sometimes because, you know, you're, there's all these confounding variables if they were admitted. Maybe it's because they were a sicker patient, older patient, more complicated fracture, pan facial, stuff like that. You couldn't trust them to go so, home. Exactly. Couldn't trust them to go home. Are they compliant? So yeah. maybe that's why they're having more complications. So there are confounding variables. The reason we picked the study and we really like it is we are fully on board with this paradigm shift from switching from admitting the patient, waiting and waiting, waiting to outpatient, getting it done as day surgery. We both agree on that. I wanted to bring up a new further paradigm shift based on my experience here. We are obviously not the American health system. We can't do this thing where someone comes to my clinic and I literally just pick a day and a time I want to have surgery. But what I'm thinking is in residency, patients come to the emergency room with a fracture. They call us. We can see the CT scans from home now. We have the technology. You can look it up and look at it from home. Why are we going to see these patients? Yeah. If they have an isolated mandible fracture, they need pain management, maybe antibiotics, and a clinic appointment. You can see them in clinic the next day, maybe two days. It's not going to affect when they can have their surgery. It's not going to you know, decrease the outcome of their surgery. Why are we constantly sending residents, and I'm not even talking about a COVID era. I'm just talking about in general. Why are we constantly going in the middle of the night all the time on call to see these patients with fractures that are really... They can just be seen in clinic. And I'm not even, I'm talking about manual fractures, let alone ZMC fractures. You know, you're not going to do anything. Yeah. You're going to see them in two weeks. Orbital fractures, if there's no entrapment, you're going to see them in a week or two. So 
Do you agree with me? Or should we just really stop seeing all these people in the ER? Or is that just too far? So do I agree with you? Yes. Do I think it's going to happen anytime soon? No. I think programs will have a hard time kind of giving residents that leeway, saying that, yeah, see the scan, tell them to come follow up in clinic the next day. I do think it's going to be hard to transition to that. But I do think we should be more selective, like especially like you said, isolated mandible fractures, we can see the scan, we're not going to operate. Like we're just not going to, right? Yeah. And so, so what's the point of sending a whole team every night? And yeah, like you said, not just in the COVID era, but we have to do realize, especially during the COVID era. Yeah. I mean, you have a poor junior resident going at three in the morning to see a patient with an isolated, non-displaced angle fracture the mandible and you're not going to operate that night and you th- they can come to clinic the next day the day after it, it affects you know, nobody up all these people it, exactly and you think i mean you, what do we do? do you think your resident then functions better the next day because he went at three in the morning no like, yeah. like no one really learning benefits. learning experience education identical they yeah. come to clinic the residents looking at the scan working it up identical patient yeah. experience honestly is identical yeah. if i saw you at three in the morning or i saw you in clinic the next day there's no difference i really feel like we need to protocolize this where the er knows Isolate a mandible fracture, fax appointment to clinic. Or even if they're not comfortable, great. Call the resident on call. Pick up the phone. Yep, let me look at the scan. I'll discuss with my senior. Isolate a mandible. Senior's comfortable. Fax the consult to clinic. And that's, you nailed it there too, that it's not just going to be our programs that have to transition. It has to be your ER department that also is okay to transition. Because sometimes ER doctors are just not comfortable themselves and they're going to force you to come in for something that you really don't need to come in for. Exactly. So... I thought it was an interesting article. It'd be nice to talk to people in academics to see if we're missing something here. Because to us, it seems like it's a good shift and it's kind of a no-brainer. We might be missing something from a legality point of view, from a liability point of view, from a reimbursement point of view. I'm not really sure, but it would be interesting to get some feedback. Hopefully, we can talk to some people or some people can reach out. But we do know that in private practice, so oral surgeons that cover call at hospitals that don't have residents, so non-teaching hospitals, community hospitals, they, a lot of the time, do not go in. They yeah. get called and they say, give me the patient's information. I'll see them tomorrow in clinic. Send them to my clinic. I have my staff. I'm actually seeing my clinic because they know what we know, which is there's no reason to see these people. There's no change in the treatment outcomes. Yeah. And once again, we're talking about you know simple fractures, isolated fractures, things that you're not going to operate on, non-urgent things. We're obviously not talking about all facial fractures. Yeah. So... That's it for Journal Club. A hefty Journal Club. Tons of articles to talk about, but we had three months to catch up on. Let's now move to our resident reminder section. All right, Oscar, for resident reminder, we wanted to do a quick one because we knew this episode would be quite long. We wanted to talk about the basics, the very basics of implants, dental implants, and the measurements you absolutely need to know. This comes up on every board exam, comes up on every, you know, rounds, every time you present a patient. What are the measurements you need to know? And so honestly, the f- it's just good to know. You should know these. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should. To, you, you have to know this. You're replacing these implants. You, yeah, you want to do these. We had a rule with our junior residents at McGill that, you know, everyone's dying to place implants. If you're going to come place implants, you need to know all the different systems, all the diameters, all the lengths. The drill you sequence. The entire drills, yeah. drill sequence. And, and listen, junior residents, I, I feel your pain. The drill sequence is like gibberish if you've never done an implant and there's... You know, we use three systems. We use Strawman, Nobel, and Astra. And every single one has different diameters, different lengths. You're trying to remember which one's which, trying to remember which protocol is which. You really, as a junior resident, have to take the time after clinic, open up the implant kit. That's it. Open up the PDF. All these companies have PDFs 
of their implant protocols. It explains the implant design, why they designed it that way, what the drill sequence is, how to manage it. You got to open the kit, look at the PDF, go one by one, drill by drill, look at the drill, look at the diameter, you, look at the length, look at the it. lines. You got to have it in your hand. Like you said, you got to open yeah. that kit and actually touch these products. So open the kit, go through, look at your sequence, do a mock scenario. I'm doing this type of implant in this area. What is my drill sequence? What is the line that I would go to? All the different lines in the drills. Everything's marked and it's different per system. So we highly recommend doing that. But let's get into some minimum minimum distances, Oscar. So what was your traditional teaching regarding implants as far as what measurements you're thinking of and what you're looking at? So the ones that like I think all of us want to know are distance to a tooth or distance to the other implant. Like I think those are the most, well, not the most important, but those are the ones that you first learn, right? Like how close can I put this implant to a tooth without really damaging anything? Or at least where should I put this implant? And the other one is how far should it, can I put this implant from another implant or how far should I put it, right? And so what we use yeah. is 1.5 from a tooth and three millimeters from an implant. Yeah. And one important thing to remember is for the implant, it's from the edge of the implant to the edge of the implant. So don't get confused when you're talking about diameters and distances. This is the edge. So, you know, a very common question on board exams and, you know, mock exams is you have eight millimeters of space mesiodistally between two teeth. What implant could you is, put it? What is the maximum diameter implant you can put? Yeah. So you got to think, yeah, it's between teeth. You have the implant diameter. You need to be 1.5 millimeters away from one tooth, 1.5 from the other tooth. So that's three millimeters total. You have eight millimeters for your mesodistal space. Eight minus three is five millimeters. So my diameter of my implant can be any size up to five millimeters. Exactly. And they'll do this where they'll throw in two oh, implants. It's between an implant. Yeah, you have to place two implants, or it's between an implant and a tooth. And the, the measurement and the calculation is the same. So something you really need to know about. Those are the basics of the mesodistal measurements. Now we get into buccal lingual. Usually they say you want a millimeter of bone, and that's to prevent, you know, fenestration, dehiscence. And it, with a caveat of that, if you're in the anterior region, you're going to want to stress that a little Good bit. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. a millimeter's thin. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Especially for aesthetic regions, as you said. You know, they'll talk about below the CEJ, gingival margin, things like that. Usually they say three millimeters below. Now, a big question that I personally found difficult to understand just because it's more of a prosthodontic thing that you always get grilled on is emergence profile why you want to be below the cj the gingiva why you don't want the implant to be too wide or too narrow sometimes and they always talk about emergence profile so oscar how would you explain emergence profile to you know a junior resident and, and like so honestly to tell you the truth i'm a visual learner so i would sit this person down and i would draw them a diagram because i think the emergence profile is really easy to show when you have a diagram because you show them it's almost like putting like if you, if you do a stick figure with a giant bobblehead on it, or you have a Q-tip with a giant Q-tip part of the, of the top portion, and that's what emergent profile is trying to prevent. You're trying to make it look so that your implant gradually comes out into your crown, and it's not just like this little thin, narrow thing that then balloons into this big top portion, heavy portion of a crown. So you want to make sure that you have a gradual transition from a narrow implant into then more of a flowered smooth transition into your crown portion. And that's what the emergence profile is. It's something that's important for a prosthodontic, restorative and aesthetic point of view. So if you're just a surgeon putting an implant, you don't consider you don't this, care. your dentist referral is gonna be annoyed, your prosthodontist is gonna be annoyed, patient's gonna be annoyed. It's the aesthetics of the final restoration. So something you need to learn about, and as Oscar said, maybe look it up in the textbook or online, what it looks like and why it matters. And it's really gonna solidify it in your mind. We wanted to give some advice for residents that are preparing for implant cases. Sometimes this is junior residents for single implants or maybe senior residents for the complex cases. I'll go first. We already talked about drill sequence. We talked about the PDF. We talked about looking at the drills, getting the sequence in your mind, figuring out how things goes. 
The next thing I'm going to talk about is you have to realize that implant surgery is finesse. You can't be pushing on these drills. You can't be forcing things. Your angulation is going to be off. You're going to perf. You're going to be too close to teeth and implants. It's all finesse. And the most important thing by far is the first pilot twist drill. Yeah. It sets the course. It's so hard to move things bodily or angulation after that. You have to really nail your first drill. So how do you do that? You measure, you look from different angles 10 times before you drill it. Take your time. Your other drills, a lot of times it just follows the path of your previous drills. Your first drill has to be perfect. Do the first drill, take a PA. Don't be a hero. Don't be annoyed that you're taking the PA. It's wasting time. Take a PA, see your angulation. There was you know, times where I would do a lower second premolar and I would do it and it would look great clinically. And I would take my PA and I'd be like, whoa, that first premolar's root is, you know, Gone. has a dilaceration. And I'm, I'm getting close. Yeah. 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 I'm getting close to it, you know? Yeah. So my advice would be your first drill is the most important and take a PA. How about you, Oscar? So I think that's huge advice. So before that, though, I, I would say I'd go back to what you said the first time. I think really a lot of it is prep, especially when you're not used to implants. Look at your case. Study your case. Look at the x-ray. Plan it out in your head. Because this is one of the most nerve-wracking things for junior residents, right? The end result of taking a tooth out is you're getting the tooth out, right? So even if you yeah. take it out in a thousand pieces, it's, binary, exactly, binary, it's coming out. An implant is the complete opposite. You are trying to keep something there. You are trying to provide stability and give a treatment. And it's a very expensive treatment that people are paying. So there is a lot of risk to this and there's a lot of pressure. So this, I think, stresses junior residents out a lot. So which is why I think you should be prepared. Practice the case in your mind. Look at the x-rays. Make sure you know everything about it. And then, yeah, once you start, don't try to, like you said, don't try to be a hero. Just because you see your staff put an implant in five minutes, don't think you're going to do it. Take the time. Take the PA. It doesn't hurt you. It doesn't, it doesn't really waste your time. It lets you see how your angulation is. And then once you have that knowledge that you're like, okay, I feel a little bit more comfortable now, then maybe cut out some steps. But at first, just go with repetition and follow every single step. And it's instant feedback. You, you think, oh, I think this angulation is good. You look at your PA. Or I think this angulation is bad. You look at your PA and it validates what you thought. So we definitely re recommend that. And as Oscar said, please prepare. Know the sequence. Plan it on the x-ray. Plan it on the 3D software. Plan it on your CBCT. Take screenshots. Print it out. Come to the clinic with those printouts. Mount it on the wall where the patient is. Your staff's going to be impressed. Your residents are going to be impressed. They're going to want you to do the case. Yeah. Don't come and say, I want to do this implant. I haven't done an implant. I want to do this implant. And then we say, okay, what implant are you doing? And you're like, uh, I don't know. Okay, what's okay, what diameter are we doing? length? Yeah. Yeah. What diameter length? Uh, I don't know. Do we have that implant in stock? Do we have that healing abutment in stock? Do we have that cover screw? You know, you come with a plan, printout, and the implant, the cover screw, and the healing abutment in your hand. You know, we're going to want you to do it, that it's, implant. It's going to be hard to say no to you. Exactly. So that's our advice. That's our resident reminder. It's on the basics of implants. And for the senior residents, when you're getting the more complex cases, just remember, as the case gets more complex, the planning matters way more because you're thinking multiple implants, parallel implants. Do you need a guide? Do you not need a guide? What is the final prosthetic restoration? Do you need bone grafting? Things get a lot more complicated from your simple implant with tons of bone, which is more of a finesse and a feel thing. So take your time and plan the case and get feedback on your planning. All right, that finishes up our resident reminder. Let's jump into recommendations and finish this off. All right, Oscar, for recommendations, first thing I want to mention to you is, you know, we actually get a ton of feedback. I don't know if it's the same with you, 
about our recommendations and how we really have the power to influence people when it comes to this. I'll give you a couple examples. The first one is a lot of people that listen to the show, they really like it, but they actually find it hilarious that we even do recommendations or talk about <laughs> what, we're, what we're watching on TV. And I explain to them, I say it's for two reasons. One, it's just entertaining. We want to give you like something to do outside oral surgery, you know, something to entertain you. It also kind of shows a little bit more about us, what we like and what we're enjoying. Keeps it lighthearted, you know, keeps it fun. And we get a lot of feedback. So I've, I've gotten a ton of feedback on Formula One Drive to Survive. People, you know, were watching it and then you also watched yep. it. You recommended it. Yep. And they, so then they watched it. And, and I haven't met a single person yet, by the way, that has watched it and has not liked it. Because you can't. No one has said that to me. You can't not like it. Uh, it's just so good. So I think that, you know, our recommendations have tons of influence. We actually had a loyal listener reach out and give their own TV recommendation. So they wanted to recommend diners, drive-ins, and dives. Okay. I've seen parts of this like here and there. They're a big fan of kind of food shows. Yeah. I don't know about you, Oscar, but my, I, I, I hate food shows. And this is the reason why. No matter what I've eaten or how full I am, if I watch a Food Network show, I'm hungry and I want to eat. <laughs> and so honestly, I'm on, first of all, I'm not a big cook. I'm not someone that loves to do it. I know some people do. I love to eat. So I will join you on that part. If I'm watching TV, I'm going to go to my fridge for sure. Yeah. yeah, like it's going to happen. So like, I don't need that. Added. I'm going to feel miserable that I can't cook as well as them or that I'm not eating. No, exactly. And, and so am I likely going to watch this? No. Do I appreciate the recommendation? Yeah, that's huge. That's awesome that people are recommending what they want, what they think is great too. And again, maybe some of our listeners will watch it. That's that's great. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a great show for people that love food shows. And it's actually good for looking at recommendations for things that are local in your area. He talked to me about the Charlotte episode, and they reckon, recommended a burger joint, and that burger joint just happens to be next to one of the hospitals we went to. So that's, I w went to that burger place after the hospital, and it was, it was phenomenal. It was amazing. That's actually a funny thing. So one of our first times that me and you met actually was when you came on our trip to Chicago with one of like my dental buddies, and you were our, our mutual friend, Tony, who's actually how we've become such good friends. You ended up coming yeah. on our trip with us. And one of the places we went to was a burger joint that was recommended that he saw on that show. So that, that's a funny connection right there, actually, too. Yeah, exactly. So that's a little fan mail recommendation. So we appreciate that. So Oscar, what recommendation do you have for us this month? So again, another reason I think we give these recommendations is because all of, a lot of us are also stuck indoors, not doing that much, right? Because of COVID, our lives have changed. So we are watching probably a lot more TV, a lot more podcasts like, than, than we normally are reading, reading a lot more books than we usually do. So I've started to run out of shows like I told you last time, but recently mm. I've watched a show called The Queen Gambit or Queen Gambit. Oh, I've heard, uh, oh, no spoilers because I've heard so many good things and, about this and, show. And so honestly, I, again, I am a binge watch. Like I watched Game of Thrones. I hadn't watched it, but then I watched it in two and a half weeks. I finished the whole thing. So like that should tell you, <laughs> but I yeah. crushed the show and, it, and I thought it was, and I'm again, I'm not a huge chess fan because it is about chess. But don't pick... Which is the problem because I am a huge oh, chess fan. You're, you're... I love chess. I used to play chess. So so honestly, again, I'm not a huge chess fan. And I almost went to go buy a chess set. I'm like, I got to do this. Like, this looks so cool. <laughs> and, and so I give it as high recommendation as I can give. Everyone I talk to, like, wow. like when I'm doing surgery now and like we're, our patients are dated and we're talking sometimes with the nurses, they're like, oh, you watching? I'm like, you have to watch this show. I'm telling everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a strong recommendation. For sure. For sure. You're going to love it. You're giving it a hard, yes, yes, a hard recommendation. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. No, I, that's a hundred percent on my list. I'll give feedback after I finish it as well. So what are you doing and, right now? What are you currently watching? You know, I actually had 
a movie teed up to tell people about on Netflix, okay? Okay. And the reason I chose a movie is because one of the feedback I got is that people love what we're recommending, but they just can't find the time to watch a full series or a show. Yep. And a lot of them, they watch movies because they know it starts, it ends, and there's an end point. They move on. They move on, you know? So I had teed up a movie that I was going to recommend called The Gentleman on Netflix. And, you know, long story short, wasn't the type of movie I normally watch. It's kind of like a dark comedy, action, drama kind of movie with Matthew McConaughey, Colin Farrell, Hugh Grant, ton of famous people. It's on oh. Netflix. I actually, ha- I actually highly recommend it. I actually think it's really good, especially considering it's not the type of movie I would ever watch. Yep, yep. But I ended up watching it and found it really funny. But what happened to me yesterday changed what my recommendation is, Oscar. And I'm doing a first here on the podcast. I'm giving a life recommendation, okay? Okay, this is, this is deep. This is deep. This is my life recommendation. If you don't have a CAA membership or an AAA membership, <laughs> get one now. And this is, this is the story. Okay. I am driving home from the hospital and the car next to me honks at me and rolls on the window and says, you got a flat tire. And I'm like, oh, my God. They're like, you need to pull over soon because, you know, the tire is flat, but everyone knows if it gets to your rims and damages your rims, you're really screwed. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. Luckily, I was, by the time he notified me, I mean, the tire had been flat for a while. I was already right next to my apartment. So I parked. Yeah, I parked and I'm I'm talking to the resident. I'm talking to some work people saying, what do I do? I've actually never had a flat tire before. Thank God I didn't like blow out. Oh, you've never had one. Or something. Never had a flat tire before. Oh, I mean, okay. knock on wood, I was lucky. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do. And I'm useless when it comes to, you know, maintenance, handyman, car stuff. I'm, you know this. I, I already told I you on the previous that. episode. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about cars. So luckily, you know, I have a CAA membership, but I'm in the States. Now, CAA has a partnership with AAA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a mutual agreement benefit there, a mutual agreement. So I called, dude, it was the most seamless process. I called them at 6.30 p.m., explained the situation. They said, do you have a spare tire? I was like, yeah, it's in the, it's in the trunk. You know, the, the car comes with a spare tire. Okay, where are you? Address, blah, blah, blah. Give me your information, membership number. Within an hour, a guy is there, professional, diagnoses the problem, takes off the tire, finds a nail that was in the tire. Then they swap it out with the spare tire tells me you need to go to a tire center. They might be able to fix it. Today, I go to the AAA car care center. They, you know, take out this nail. They patch the tire. They mount the tire back on. They test all the, you know, tire pressures. They balance and equalize everything. They do this all. This took me a day to fix this problem. And with my CAA membership, I didn't pay for anything except the tire patching costed 40 bucks. That's so worth it right there. No headaches, nothing to worry about. No headaches. Phenomenal. Now, some listeners are going to think. You're an idiot. Wow. You don't know how to, you don't, yeah, you don't, you're an idiot. You don't know how to change a tire. <laughs> exactly. Like, first of all, I didn't know, I didn't know this. I don't know if you know this, but I, maybe it's a new car thing, but all these cars, they have, a I know they have lock. spare tires. Like, so they have a special lock so that people can't steal your tires. They yeah. also have, you know, these cars have spare tires in the trunk or somewhere on the car. You're supposed to know where it is, which is fine. I knew where that is. It actually comes with a jack yeah. and a wrench and things like that. So you can do it yourself. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I thought you had to go out and purchase that equipment <laughs> if you knew how to do it yourself. I didn't realize it came like standard in these cars. So that, that was already something I didn't know. Now I would have no idea what I'm doing. I've seen in the movies, no clue. Now, having watched it, I realized it's really not that much too. And I can see why people say you should be able to do it. But like, am I going to trust myself 
to change a tire for the first time and then go drive somewhere? Yeah, and like and like that's what I say. Like honestly speaking, so I've done it actually quite a bit of times. So I've I've been the opposite. I haven't been as lucky as you. So it is really easy to do. But that's not the point. The point is convenient. Absolutely. Right. And so it's like there gets to a point in your life where sometimes time is worth more, right? And so the convenience of where you didn't have to do anything. You waited around. The car car was fixed for you. They took you took your tire, got it replaced, forty dollars. Like, how can you go wrong with that? 40, 40 bucks to fix the tire. So now the true story is shout out to my dad because my dad's the one with the CAA membership and he just adds this onto his plan. So I asked him, I said, by the way, how much do you pay for this? Because this is like the greatest service ever. Get this. You know, when it comes to cars and repairs and service, you're always paying hundreds yeah. of dollars because you have no idea on the dealership versus if you go to a mechanic and all this type of stuff. Yeah. The CA basic membership is $74 for the year. Oh my God. And to add on your family members, it's $44 for a year. Like, how is that not worth it? Remember, this guy came to my place within an hour, fixed everything, <laughs> left for free. Yeah. This is part of my membership. And because I went to the AAA car center, it was discounted, I guess, to do the whole tire patching or whatever, how it works. But this is unbelievable. So my recommendation is a life recommendation. If you don't have CAA, you need to get CAA, especially for your kids. Now, if you're someone that can do this all yourself, I mean, think about it this way. If you discover you have a flat tire, even if you can change it yourself, would you be willing to pay $74 for someone else to do it for you? For the whole Unlimited year. Unlimited amounts of time for the whole year and, you know... Potentially, you pay 44 bucks for your kids. So it's even like a time benefit thing. Yeah. Like you're chilling. You're, you're on your phone. You're eating. You're watching TV, waiting for the guy to show up. He comes. He does it. 15 minutes. You're done. So that's my recommendation. It's a life recommendation. I think everyone should get CAA. And for our American listeners, they should get uh, AAA. Actually, that's a good one. I, I do think that that is very good. You're a new car owner yourself. So I think you have to make sure you get it, too. Yeah. And I've already had to change my tire once on this car. You did? I did. Yeah. I've had it for a year and I had a flat. Did you change? Oh, yeah, that's what you're saying. You change it yourself. I did change it myself. Yeah, yeah but I was still annoyed. I'm pretty impressed. You're <laughs> you're a new car owner. You're a new car owner, and you already know how to do more than I do. <laughs> Just for those wondering, CAA is Canadian Automobile Association. I guess I, we could have mentioned that, but I think most people know. And then it's the American Automobile Association, but it's great. And I think if you're a Costco member, you get it even at a discount. If you Google it, there's ways to get CAA. I think that are super cheap, and then you get also discounts on all these other things. So it might actually pay for itself yeah. if you do the math on what I you're already so. purchasing. Anyway, that's my recommendation. This has been a marathon episode, but a, a truly enjoyable one. We had so much to catch up on. Oscar, it was great catching up with you as well. And I guess that's it for this episode. We'll be back in December with a new special guest. Thanks for listening and tuning in. We appreciate your feedback. If you want to get in contact, it's teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We will see you next month. See you guys. <laughs>